Hey everybody, Tyler here. Just wanted to let everyone know what this episode is going to be. So uh, I have uh, Jeff Newberg on the show and we talk about Ilya Kazan's A Face in the Crowd. At least we do for a while. And then things turn very, very political. Um, you'll notice that this episode is is fairly long. It's close to two and a half hours. A solid hour of that is politics. Um, and uh, some of it has to do with the movie, and some of it is just extemporaneous discussion. Um, uh, Jeff is more liberal, and I'm more conservative. Uh, there are things that we agree on and things we don't agree on. Uh, and we, it never, I don't think it ever dips into the area of debate. Uh, I think it mostly just stays as a discussion, but it's entirely possible that, uh, you could, uh, hear this episode and be offended by something that Jeff says or something that I say. Uh, and so I just wanted to let everybody know that, um, because there's this solid hour and it's right in the middle, we do eventually come back to the film and larger themes to discuss, but there's this solid hour in the middle that honestly I toyed with taking out, but uh, I think I decided to leave it in because as I've said before, I, I like the idea of being vulnerable on this show. And one of the ways to be vulnerable is to leave in stuff that could potentially frustrate somebody, but it's who you are. And so who I am as a conservative and as a Christian and as a, a political thinker that that's probably a bit lofty, but, uh, that is reflected in this, in this episode. Um, same with Jeff. And so, um, you know, listening back, there are points that I wish that I had made that I didn't. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the way it goes when you have these types of discussions. So I just wanted to give you guys a heads up. Uh, if you enjoy, uh, a face in the crowd and you want to hear us talk about that um, and only talk about that, you can probably tune out after about an hour. Um, obviously, we do relate a lot of the film to Donald Trump. A lot of people have been talking about the film in that regard uh, lately, and so that's what kicks it off. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to let I wanted to let you guys know I didn't want you to be taken uh, by surprise. Uh, a number of people have said they like hearing political talk on on the podcast, but uh, but yeah, I just wanted to I didn't want I didn't want to get any uh, any angry comments. At least I didn't want to get any angry comments from people saying this is not why I listen to the show. I've given you fair warning. There's a lot of it in this episode. So maybe you're looking forward to that. Maybe not. If you want to leave uh, a comment in regards to some of the things that we say, then by all means do so. Uh, otherwise, um, consider yourself warned and on with the show.
Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Uh, thank you all for listening. I wanted to uh, uh, thank everybody once again for your patience the last couple of weeks. I was sick two weeks ago and did not release an episode. And then last week, I uh, released that mini-sode about uh, uh, dealing with depression, and I got a couple of nice emails about that. And uh, I want to remind everybody that uh, if that is a thing that you struggle with, that uh, you are certainly not alone, um, that a number of uh, that th- millions of people all over the world deal with that as well. Uh, and so feel free to give uh, that mini soda listen and, uh, and weigh in in the comments with things that you've struggled with. Um, and uh, if for no other reason than to, to let everybody else know, uh, you know, what, what you have in some cases overcome or not overcome. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I want to try and destigmatize this a little bit. Um, so anyway, uh, so, okay. What are we talking about today? The answer is everything. We're talking about everything. Uh, we do not have uh, 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 one of my uh, normal co-hosts. So I would say we don't even have a normal guest. We've got Jeff Newberg. He's back. Jeff, how you doing? Pretty good. How are you, man? Not bad. So, all right. <clears throat> Jeff hasn't been on in a while. I think the last time you were on, we talked about It Follows. Was oh, that yeah. That, oh, yeah. Man. So that was a while ago. That was yeah. like a year and a half ago, I think. Well, that's a good one. Um, but uh, but yeah, Jeff is on uh, every about year and a half to two years. Yeah, that's the end. Yeah, um, that's the... <laughs> usually when nobody else is available or <laughs> when he's really passionate about something. And that is the case today. Yeah. So, uh, Jeff, how you doing? Pretty good. Um, as we talked about a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. sort of horrible... I mean, not just in the the way Twitter thinks 2016 was horrible. Sure. But a really personally tragic 2016 that I think a lot of the the um, the mechanisms to deal with crisis, like marital therapy, y'all, um, a lot of those mechanisms like got us through the crisis and then became the tools for actual healthy living. Oh, good. In 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 the day to day, and so for a few months now pretty awesome hey that's great yeah that's uh you don't hear that from people much in in life that, oh yeah like, how you doing i'm several- just supposed to say oh man busy really busy you know like <laughs> oh it's great you know it's good to be busy right that's yeah you have summed up uh, uh casual los angeles interactions very well well let's just not, busy like, so busy or church or church how are you i'm good i'm yeah. good how are you no i'm oh i'm broken yeah actually Actually, I'm broken. How, how are, in which way are you broken? <clears throat> I've found that, uh, this is a thing that I've said before that, uh, as I've gotten older, I'm now 35. I've had a birthday since uh, the last episode. Um, that, uh, as I've gotten older, the word exhausted has worked its way into my lexicon a lot. I knew the word before, but I say it a lot now. Um, and so if somebody asks, that's my version of busy. Um, you know, how you doing? I'm exhausted. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, that, and the phrase, I don't have the energy for this, uh, <laughs> is something I say more than I should. Um, I just start using that with my toddlers. <laughs> it, I don't yeah, have the energy go. for this. Go to your room. Now, how old are your kids now? Uh, yeah. Toddlers plural is a lie. Uh, okay. one, the one is one and a half and the eldest just turned four. Four. Okay. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah, the, that was a real transition. She's like a she's like a person now. Yeah, that's yeah. got to be. Is that okay? Now, I assume that on one level that's amazing. On another level, it's kind of it's kind of a bummer. 
Yeah, man. There's this phrase, uh, three-nager for, for three-year-old girls, hmm. like this phenomenon of them exhibiting behavior you only associate with teenagers, and it shocks you. Like slamming doors in your faces, like just daily. Like, like on purpose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And and just blows your mind. And that into four, that continues at even an, a higher amplitude. Wow. Uh, there's a lot of like head shaking. And you know, if you're in the right place, you can laugh at it. And if you're in the wrong one, yeah. you want to treat her like she's your enemy. Yeah. If you are exhausted and don't have the energy for this, which then I never am, yeah. never exhausted. Um, <laughs> and, and you say that that's specific to three-year-old girls. Is I've it, only heard the term applied. Okay. Um, to, to girls. Okay. And I, I've yet to experience a three-year-old boy under my roof. Uh, your youngest is a boy. Yeah. Okay. And he's one and a half. Oh boy. That's exciting. <laughs> um, so, okay. Now we've got a lot of stuff to cover. Oh yeah. Now everything it, we've got everything to cover. Uh, we've talked about children. We've talked about depression. Uh, there's like three or four more things I think, uh, in this world. Um, so, okay. Uh, you and I had had, uh, in the last uh, month or so, we'd had a little bit of interaction saying like, Hey, I got to get you back on the show to talk about what, whatever. And then I received what can only be described as an urgent, uh, text, oh, I think boy. from you saying, Hey, we need to talk about, I think you threw out the, the title of face in the crowd. Mm -hmm. Um, now you threw it out because you eventually wanted to arrive at politics. Yeah. I think um, it was really straightforward. I was like, yeah. I think I said something along the lines of, <laughs> face in the crowd or any other movie that can serve as a Trojan horse to talk about politics. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I latched on to face in the crowd cause it's a film that I, that I had watched. I'd seen many, many years ago. Um, but, uh, in my TV history class, we watched like the first 30 minutes of it because, um, Oh, because just the TV element in the movie. Right. And also uh, like so many other people, I think, uh, I think my instructor was trying to incorporate uh, a face in the crowd as a commentary on uh, larger things going on. Uh, and so, well, what period was that? Would that be like W years or no, uh, this is a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. Your current curriculum. Yeah. My, my, my current TV history class. So, uh, but yeah, years ago I saw it just on my own cause I'd heard great things about it, but, um, but yeah, so watching the first 30 minutes and I thought like, wow, I forgot how much I enjoy this movie. And then I got that text from you and I thought, well, that sounds like confirmation if ever I've heard it. And, uh, and so then I, I finished watching it, finished rewatching it last night and, uh, was very excited to talk about it. Um, and it's a film that has been talked about a lot in the last, uh, couple of months. Um, people, big, people talk about it in regards to Donald Trump and a certain type of populism. And that is indeed what we will be talking about. Um, uh, people have said they want more politics on this show. So mission accomplished. Here that is goes, what you're folks. going to get, but we do, but that's the thing is I, I, I want to be careful, uh, not politically. I want to be careful artistically, uh, because I don't want to talk. I don't want to get so hell bent on talking politics that we neglect to talk about a face in the crowd directed by Ilya Kazan. Uh, he of streetcar named desire and on the waterfront fame Oh man! and, uh, written by Bud Schulberg and starring among others, Andy Griffith. And I think that is usually where people start talking about this film. Uh, now, when did you, when did you first see the movie? Uh, for this. Really? I'd only studied it. Yeah. I'd only studied it as an ar artifact in, you know, history classes and stuff. Okay. And I was like, you know, when I mentioned it, it you know, I, I like to be self-effacing and overtly 
uh, upfront about my ulterior motives. Uh, wow. so, I, so I mentioned it as the Trojan horse, but I also really did want to watch it. Okay. All right. So, yeah. oh, so you watched this having, having seen uh, parts of it before, but you've watched it in its entirety. First time in con in this ago. context, right? The context of not merely more than one lesson, yeah. but modern politics. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, dude. That is interesting. But uh, but let's not forget, I mean, especially from my particular uh, creative background, certainly in the context of capital K, capital A, capital Z, capital A, capital N, Kazan is oh, sure, a towering yeah, yeah. figure yeah. In, in sort of the world, the, the world I come from. Yeah, uh, in the uh, so I'm currently TAing for a film history class, and just last week uh, I talked about in my section... Uh, the effect of the Cold War and McCarthyism on film. And so it's only a matter of time before you arrive at Ilya Kazan, mm -hmm. who is still to this day a very controversial figure <laughs> um, because he named names. And it's yeah. it's crazy because he undoubtedly ended some people's careers, or at least for, for a while. Uh, and then he went on to make some great movies. And so uh, I believe uh, Josh and I talked about On the Waterfronts uh, about a month and a half ago as we were going through the best pictures. And, you know, one thing that I, that I say is that like, you know, when you talk about Ilya Kazan, you kind of have to, to, uh, to quote our pastor, not in regards to this, but uh, you kind of have to live in that tension of he created some amazing movies, but he also probably present, uh, prevented other people from creating some amazing movies. So you kind of have to yeah. hold the two of those in your mind at the same time. But, yeah. uh, but he was definitely to relate his past films to this film, I will say very few directors are as effective at capturing a certain histrionic quality in their mm. characters, whether it be uh, Stanley Kowalski yelling out Stella or Lonesome Roads laughing maniacally. Well, that's funny because I, I, I absolutely think histrionic is the right word for lonesome. Um, but I think one of the, you know, especially in my subculture, mm -hmm. Kazan's uh, prominence is due to his foundational role in um, the you know the the play the playhouse in 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 New York City and Brando that that school of method is a really really tricky term because it it means a lot of things other than what we think it means most of the time but that the naturalism of on the waterfront yeah you know. So I, I think it's I think it's a testament to his bandwidth yeah. as a director of performance. Yeah, and and his ability to adapt to what he is actually making. Yeah. You'll always get great performances, but there are different types of great performances. Even even if you want to just look at Marlon Brando, you know, mm -hmm. his performance in Streetcar Named Desire is different than his performance in On the Waterfront yeah. because Tennessee Williams tonally is very different than uh than whoever wrote on the waterfront was it i think it was it might have been a was it kazan who adapted i don't know uh that is that is uh possible yes i think um, he adapted i don't know but nonetheless it's just uh you know tennessee williams uh let's go back to that word histrionic i think mm -hmm. works mm -hmm. um and so so yeah i think he's somebody i remember uh when I was watching, I was watching the commentary to Glengarry Glen Ross and, uh, 
James Foley, the director, was saying that it was such an interesting experience directing that because every actor had a different style and he had to be able to navigate within those styles. Now, oh boy, and just iconoclast those. Yeah. I mean, you've got word. Jack Lemmon acting opposite Al Pacino and then you've got Ed Harris in there and here comes Alec Baldwin. Like it's all my over word. the place. Yeah. Those personalities. Um, and Ilya, Ilya Kazan's ability to navigate within different character tones and writing styles, I think is something that is worth noting. Now I've never actually seen gentlemen's agreement. I will get there eventually because it won best picture. Um, but, uh, but I've heard good, I've heard good things and I've heard not great things. Did so haven't seen it <clears throat> heard similar. I've heard it's a, it's, it's kind of an issue film. It deals with uh, anti-Semitism, And so it could, you know, hit you over the head with it, or it could be really, really solid. Well, it's a good thing we've reconciled that issue and we don't have to deal with it. And Problem solved. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a good thing that doesn't exist. Uh, yeah, it's there's a, a, a conservative commentator that is occasionally infuriating to me uh, named Ben Shapiro, who uh, definitely was uh, not on the Trump train and still isn't. Um, well, he is Jewish and he was not a fan of Donald Trump during the primary. So uh, to look at his Twitter feed as far as like people tweeting to him is uh, disheartening. Uh, uh, just yeah. to, just to see it is, it's fascinating. A lot um, of green frogs. What was that? A lot of green frogs. Yeah. What's a that from? Of, is that oh, from Pepe? something? Yeah. Oh, uh, Pep, yeah. The green frog is a, you know, dog whistle be, would be one term. A uh, piece of propaganda would be another. Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a signifier <laughs> okay. for the alt-right. So he, you know, this frowning frog yeah, is just a like symbol they started eyes. using. Yeah, they started using early on, and that they saw as something they could in, inject into popular culture. That's very strange. Very. I mean, I guess that's the case with almost any kind of symbol that somebody uh, adopts, but it's a weird little frog that has uh, that is named Pepe. Yeah. Uh, that's odd. Indeed. Um, but yes, you saw that in a lot of uh, people. Well, but so much of it comes out of this, you know a lot of it, like the, the association between like Steve Bannon and Gamergate, for instance. Sure. So much of it comes out of this gamer, winky, uh, self-identified nerd geek culture mm -hmm. that, I mean, something that's very much overtly weird yeah. for no, you know, with, with inherent contradictions, for instance, the ethnic name, yeah. um, is, you know, but it's sort of intrinsically cool. Okay. I could, uh, yeah, I could see that. And, and it, and it speaks to what we'll be talking about a little bit later, which is the inter uh, intersection of, uh, politics and populism. Like mm. that is a populist attitude of bringing in a certain type of, and populism these days in some ways does mean embracing a certain nerd element of things. Um, and so like taking this, goofy looking graphic and having that suddenly mean something politically, uh, is worth noting. But yeah, uh, in looking at like Ben Shapiro's Twitter feed and then just, uh, stuff with, uh, Richard Spencer, there's this, you know, the movie lover in me watches that and, and reads that stuff and says like, this is stuff from movies, mm. like movies about the 1940s and sixties. Yeah. Uh, but we're not in that time right now. So why am I hearing this or, or are we? Um, and so, yeah, it's just, a, it's such a crazy time. We did a countdown for those of you who don't see the video feed. We tried to synchronize. I, I held up hands like, like in the, the aforementioned movie on a TV, a TV uh, taping queue. Absolutely. Five, four, and then the silent three, two, one that you guys weren't a party to. Is it, is, is three? Sorry, I thought, it's two, I thought one. One, two, one. It's right. just two, one. Um, 
so uh so yeah let's talk a little bit about those are the kind of the details crowd. we're gonna obsess about on this episode exactly. guys look forward to three two one versus two one yeah are you are you looking for in-depth character analysis nope. look elsewhere <laughs> we're gonna be talking about the technical element of television and we will bore you to death uh. um you thought you were, we were going to talk politics. No, no, no. We're talking about studio politics <laughs> on set. Um, so, okay. Uh, so one thing that I had said uh, off mic to you is that if there is one good thing that can be uh, combed out of the current uh, electoral uh, and political landscape, it's that people are talking more about a face in the crowd. And that's a big win. Here, here. That's um, all we want. And, uh, it's all it's it, it's very rare for a, an older film or novel or something like that to to be invoked in in popular culture. Uh, so that's very exciting. I do also if it weren't the companion film for uh, a movie that we talked about years ago, I would also talk about the original All the King's Men, which fits this really well. Huh. Uh, winner of Best Picture 1949, I think. And based on um, based on what I would say is my favorite novel um, and a loose, uh, a fictionalized uh, version of uh, the rise of Huey Long. Mm. So it's this populist candidate who nobody thinks will win. He just, he's plain spoken and all that. He tells people what they, you know, he's saying what we're all thinking and he, and he has genuine ideals, but then once he gets power, he keeps power. Mm. Um, and the first time he runs for governor, he loses. Uh, and there's this, but he's not, downtrodden because there comes this moment and this speaks to something you and I were talking about off mic. He doesn't seem downtrodden and he's, and they're like, why are you so upbeat? And he goes, cause I learned something on the campaign. And he said, what's that? And he said, how to win. Yeah. And then he wins. Yeah. And in the dirtiest, most horrible way possible, um, uh, the film won best picture actor and supporting actress. It's a marvelous book. It's a marvelous film. I didn't see the 2006 adaptation. I heard it was terrible. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but, I have now said that, gotten it out of the way. All the King's Men, check it out. And if you'd like to borrow I it, I can lend it to you. I, yes. Um, <clears throat> so A Face in the Crowd is, well, you know what? I'll throw it to you. You watched it for the first time recently. Uh, you, you can give a, a, a plot summary if you like, but just in general, what did you think of it? Yeah. Um, you know, the, I think that you really keyed in on something with with histrionic, uh, there, there's this, I mean, especially just who I am and where I come from and sort of, you know, as an actor and as a writer and, uh, increasingly on a small scale, a filmmaker of my own stuff. Um, you know, like I, I, it's my aesthetic. I think, I think it's really easy to say that your aesthetic is the truth and a horrible mistake. Sure. But my aesthetic, generally speaking is, um, is a naturalism and especially a naturalism of performance. But, I think it's really telling that so many of my favorite films, if not my favorite performances, really do have a over the topness to them. Yeah. And the Andy Griffith character, like I, I think I think you need a histrionic um quality in the performance because of the the over the top narrative. Yeah. One of the things you and I talked about off mic was this stranger than fiction element of there's so many things in our current political uh, environment that are stranger than this, this particular piece of fiction, Yeah, but that you, you sort of see in the filmmaking, I think you can sort of see this thought process of like, what's too bold and what's not. Yeah. And so this character who, um, lonesome, who goes from being a jail inmate to, uh, 
a singer on a radio program to a radio host to a small town TV host to a New York City variety show host uh, with a national audience to a political consultant. Yeah. And it's like, you can see and, them. And the, the, the assumption that it's like, if he's successful as a consultant, it's only a matter of time before he then becomes a politician. Right. And I feel like you can see them making the calculation. Well, we got to have him fall from grace before he gets to the presidency. Cause that's right. just too bananas. Yeah. Surely, surely that yeah. could, he will prop up this other guy who is more politically experienced, but just is not very interesting. Uh, he'll prop him up. That's more feasible than lonesome road. Surely this couldn't happen. And it's worth noting that, you know, at the time this film came out in 1957, that, you know, at the time, I think Ronald Reagan had was still acting or had just kind of stopped acting. Uh, and so the idea of somebody going from show business mm. into like the highest level of politics was still kind of a, a crazy idea. Right. I mean, he wasn't even near the governorship at that point. I think I think his political career at that point was within SAG. Yeah. OK, that's probably screen true. actor skill. Yeah. Governor, you know, governorship. Yeah government yeah up until this point the only interaction that actors ever had was with presidents is when they were shooting them or uh, or wink wink ing them no that was that was like that was a full oh that was later. that was later but come yeah. on probably some other stuff before that yeah probably i just wanted to make a john wilkes booth joke <laughs> um <laughs> so uh yeah there's there's so much going on with this film and 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 you summed it up it's very much about this guy's meteoric rise. Um, and he just, this, this, uh, young woman, uh, this ambitious young woman who works on a radio program in Arkansas, I believe, yeah. um, called a face in the crowd. She just finds real people and hears their stories. And so she goes into this jail cell, finds this gross looking drunk played by Andy Griffith. Yeah. We'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. Um, and who can sing, who can sing Andy can sing. Yeah. But in a very specific type of way, oh, yeah. his, his voice has a lot of character to it. Yeah. Um, and so he, he has his guitar and he sings a song and he is released from jail and then goes on to, to guest on radio shows. And then he's the host and he, there's just, there's a, a folksy quality to him. Some of it is manufactured. Some of it is real. Um, I think he does an argument could be made at what point he starts to heighten things. Yeah. Uh, he is already a pretty heightened person. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I don't think he's a full on con man yet. Uh, or at least I don't think he sees this as a con. Oh, I don't know. I think the, the scene that gives me evidence with which to disagree is when his ex comes into the picture. Oh, sure. By and then can prophesy about the future merely from past experience. I guess that is true, but that's, I guess that's a function of, I guess that's a type of con man is like the womanizer who doesn't tell yeah. his current girlfriend what's you know, <laughs> who he used to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, <clears throat> so just through charm and, and telling people what they want to hear. And in some cases, what they accept as true and what might actually be true. Um, and just kind of, you know, engaging in some, to use a political term, some straight talk. Um, people really respond to him and, and he seems, you know, and there's a, a scene that's very interesting where he's, he's on TV and he goes backstage and, and pulls out this, this, uh, black woman who's on this, who he met on the street yeah. and a black woman has never been in, on 
TV in this particular part of the country. And so it's very exciting for, for black viewers, you know, and they say it's about time. And so, you know, his, his appeal, uh, I'm reminded of a political candidate who was the first member of his party to, to wave an LGBT, uh, flag or to utter the word, the, the acronym LGBTQ, um, and therefore was suddenly a champion of said people groups rights. I don't actually know who that is. Who is that at the RNC this year? Oh, really? Yeah, he did that. He, on one he level, whose name good, I shall not utter. No, we'll say it uh, in a moment. But no, uh, I, I don't want to. Okay, well, it's well. I'm. I gonna, mean, I'll probably change uh, my mind in five seconds. Yeah, exactly. That's where I'm at right now. Uh, I'm the host of the show, and you'll say what I tell you to say. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of off mic whipping, guys. Yeah, it's look. You don't get to be a multiple podcast award nominee <laughs> uh, without whipping your guests into shape. Um, that's two weeks in a row. I have mentioned being a podcast award nominee jokingly, of course, of course, uh, it is ridiculous. Um, <clears throat> it has replaced my, uh, my win for best actor state of Missouri in the year 2000. It's been 17 <laughs> years. Uh, the time has come for me to, to pivot to this other meaningless, uh, uh, accolade. So, um, so yeah, uh, it, it's very much about this guy and there's, there's definitely a, a stylized heightened quality to the whole film. Um, and, but with, but, but with weird exceptions like Mathau yeah, is, is just, I mean, exquisitely yeah. minimalist. And I'd, I'd say the same thing. I wouldn't say minimalist, but Patricia Neal is likewise yeah. sort of living in on the waterfront as far as performance goes. Yeah. Um, but I think that's like, if you've got no. one dude who's larger than life, you've only got one histrionic presence. Right. Yes. I guess that is, that's true. I guess from, from the way the film is made, mm -hmm. I mean, um, the way that it, uh, you know, will sometimes get like grotesque close-ups of lonesome rogues yeah. laughing and that sort of thing. So the film, I think, I think Ilya Kazan wisely takes his cues tonally from Andy Griffith's performance. Mm. Um, and so let's talk about that performance. Now, like so many other people, and again, I saw this film a while ago, but like so many other people, I have an association with Andy Griffith. It is in fact, the Andy Griffith show, yeah. um, where he is just this very, again, uh, not unlike a, a version of Lonesome Roads, like mm -hmm. down home folksy. Uh, but in this, but in the case of the, the show wise and soft spoken and patient and humble and all of these things. And you know, that was definitely the public image of Andy Griffith for a long time. He didn't really, uh, I guess he did Matlock, but again, uh, instead of being a sheriff, now he's a small town lawyer yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, so, a lot of bandwidth. so there was a, there was a definitely a, a framework with which people were comfortable thinking of Andy Griffith after his show, mm. which is fascinating because I wonder if the Andy Griffith show had not happened or if it had happened 10 years later, how would, what kind of roles would he have gotten coming off of a face in the crowd? Yeah. I'm astonished that he was given the show he was given. Oh, right. When you look at this performance, yeah, it is an astonishing performance and one that is sometimes grating as it should be, as the character is. Um, but just, you know, one thing about Lonesome Roads is that he is, he has this big over the top laugh, a, a Max Katie in the new Cape fear type of laugh. Um, and he just uses it to ingratiate himself to people, but he does at times. I genuinely forgot. I was watching Andy Griffith because of just how he carries himself. Yeah. He just seems like such a dirt bag, uh, sometimes. Yeah. <clears throat> like when he's staying 
you know, there come moments when he's staying in a nice hotel in New York, but he's still, you know, uh, sleeping in his tank top and just seems dirty. Yeah. Uh, it needs, it needs a sp- spittoon in the boardroom. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Um, although that could have been, a uh, an affectation in the Almost moment. certainly. Um, but and, I think that that line is important. Yeah. Um, that, that blurry line between this, you know, this self, the self-styled authenticness versus the authentic authenticness. Yeah. Like, I think that, I think that line is being really effectively yeah. exploited by, by Griffith. There's a, a wonderful documentary that very few people have seen. Uh, and I just happened up, uh, upon many years ago called searching for the wrong eye Jesus. And it That's is so weird. I just started watching that. Is that for tr- so many years, people have been telling me about it. Is that true? Yeah. I just like, you know, I, I still, you know, this, this gap that's been created by Netflix killing all the video stores, sure. uh, like a fair amount of film fans. I, I still have a, a disc subscription to, oh, wow. to Netflix, which is now called dvd.com. Um, is so that true? I, yeah. So I, I get one a month and the one I've got at home that I'm 20 minutes into is wrong. Eye Jesus. Wow. Yeah. That's weird. Well, people have been telling me about it for 15 years Yeah, it, or 10 or whatever. It so. came out in, in. 2005, I think, and it has gained a certain following among certain people. And having lived in, I wouldn't say I lived in the deep South. I lived in Southern Missouri, which was deep enough uh, for some of the people that lived there. I saw some, some Confederate flags on the sides of cars. Um, And what I, what I like is that uh, about the documentary is that it acknowledges that as Americans, we all have an idea of what the South is. And sometimes it is, that is true. But it's so much more complex than that. It's, you know, we all have this image of like, you know, nice church going folks drinking sweet tea and that sort of thing. It's like, that is the case in some, in some areas. Uh, but it's also, you know, just bars and roadhouses and, and that sort of thing. It is not, it's not as quaint as uh, we city folk might think it is, uh, at least not consistently. And, um, and that's something that I love about that documentary. And that's something that I, that's, that's what I see in Lonesome Roads is that hmm. there's times when he is folksy and it di- and it is genuine, but just as genuine is his uh, his womanizing and his he's not a simple character. He pl- he'll play up his simple uh, his simplicity because that's what people expect from him. But he is in fact pretty smart and and knows how to manipulate. Well, yeah, I, I think I think the interesting thing like. And I, I think it's it's something that's real is I think what he has is what we generally look at these days as as quote political talent. Sure. Quote. Like it's it's an innate ability and I, I think there's that. I mean that absolute like seminal moment where what has he done? Hasn't he just gotten via his radio platform? He's gotten a bunch of people to show up at like the sheriff's house. Yes. And they're in the car and you know, Patricia Neal's character, Marsha says to him something like you can get people to do whatever you say. And yeah. there's like that big aha moment where, you know, he goes quiet for a second. He's like, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's not that he's, you know, intelligent per se or, or talented in a specific way. Yeah. It's this, this idea of political talent of having a natural aptitude yeah. to to hold people in thrall in his thrall it's a specific type of intelligence that could that you could almost say is simple is simply a shrewdness right um and and that he's savvy in certain circumstances that he's you know he's probably lived a rough life and it has engendered in him a certain uh 
uh, world weariness and a, a certain street mar- uh, street smart uh, element that he is able to play up and and use to manipulate people. But yeah, he's not. I would I would say he's not uh, book smart. Yeah. Um, right. But uh, but the people that are book smart see him in a very specific way, and he's smart enough to know how he is seen. Mm. And and so it really is uh, a com- a complex character played marvelously by. Andy Griffith. I'm sure most people, if they watch this film, they would never, you would not think he has this in him. Yeah. Uh, it, it almost makes you uncomfortable. It's like, Hey, Andy Taylor, what, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, it's like, you want to believe that, that, that Andy Griffith is so decent yeah. of a human being that he can't even, uh, he can't even, uh, fake this level of, uh, depravity and manipulation. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the, those, you know, kind of get out of the box performances and in our, I mean, I guess you could, the, it's not really a good comparison at all because it goes from being likable in one way to being likable in another, like the Tom Hanks turn from comedy to Oscar bait drama. Sure. Um, but that's sort of like, yeah, that very in reverse, Mm -hmm. that shift from this insane man to, I mean, one of the, I mean, one of, one of early TV's poster boys for mm-hmm. small town, like the, the Andy Griffith show, man, that's, yeah. as, that's about as starched collar as it gets. Yeah. And just, uh, you know, you just went to the swimming hole and now let's just whistle all the way back home. Oh man. That opening sequence. As opposed to, and I've, I've, I haven't watched that much Andy Griffith show. I watched, you know, I, but when I do see it, I do enjoy it. There's definitely an element to Andy and Barney Fife and all that. And just the dynamic that they have that does seem very comforting. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Mayberry and just that type of thing is, is how you want, it's how you picture small town life and how you want it to be. And then maybe when you see Lonesome Roads and you see the small town, he is, he is first introduced and it's like, maybe that's a little closer to what it actually is. Or maybe it's a blend of the two. Mm. Um, Cause this is a film that is uh, not afraid to look at things through a purely pessimistic uh, or at least cynical lens, I would say. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, and, and what I'm about to say is probably going to get us into uh, larger political talk, because one thing that I do find fascinating about the film, uh, and about the, the character of Lonesome Roads, um, is that towards the end, I, I kind of sympathize with him a little bit, Mm. or rather, you know, when he is, when he's lost his audience, he's ranting and raving, he wants people to love him. Uh, he's kind of begging them to love uh, him, and and he just and he's just so alone after being given a national audience and having everybody. You know, Patricia Neal is he not the Casey Affleck of his time? I'm sorry, man. Like I I like he the man the man hasn't been convicted of anything sure but what can't be disputed is the feelings about the sure. stories about him by his peers oh yeah and just watching him and his demeanor and his speech and you know photos from after the fact where <laughs> yeah. all the other actor actor winners are next to each other and he's like literally in the corner yeah. like it's just sad and like there's that sad moment of well if if what he did is true, that's, that's, you know, if what he's accused of is true, it's horrible. In the, in the case of lonesome, we know what he's done and it yeah. is horrible. And yet 
in his loneliness, you feel bad for him. Like that mm, penultimate line in the movie uh, of Mathau's mm-hmm. when, you know, he says he doesn't strike me as a suicide. Yeah. I mean, that is deeply tragic. The man is so narcissistic yeah. that he's not capable of destroying yeah. his, his ultimate, you know, his God. Well, Whereas a man, a, a man 20% less narcissistic would have, the implication is would have the honor to kill himself. <laughs> And like that, you mentioned cynicism. That that is a that cynical. Is, this is taking a dark turn. Well, I don't know how else to read that in the context well, of the movie. I don't know how else to read that line. Yeah, it's it definitely. It's weird. Like you would think that that seems to be a line of comfort, but it is not delivered with any. It's delivered with, uh, oddly enough, more scorn. Okay. Uh, right. And and yeah, it's but there's also this element of like obviously a narcissism, but uh, but this element of like. Well, if Lonesome Rhodes kills himself, he's not going to be able to make anybody love him again. Mm. And that ultimately is what he's striving for. And that's something that honestly I can relate to. Um, and, and I think probably a lot of people can relate to, but the idea of being loved, you know, by the public and then losing that is something that I think would be, could drive a person insane. Mm. Um, but what I think is interesting is that, you know, you mentioned that scene in the car with Patricia Neal saying, you can do this. Yeah. And she has a stake in him doing that, yeah. as does that guy who becomes his agent, as does Walter Matthau early on. A lot of people want him to be as successful as possible, and they built him up into this into this thing. Now, his own nature is what allowed him to be as horrible as he was capable of being, but he had no, you know, early on, like he had no expectation of somebody loving him. Mm. He had no expectation of everybody loving him. Uh, it's something that eventually came about. So like people built him up. It didn't change him. It's, it, it reminds me in some ways of there will be blood. Daniel Plainview was not corrupted by money. <laughs> he was already uh, something of a monster, yeah. but money allowed him to be horrible on a higher level, just as fame allows lonesome roads to be horrible on a higher level uh, than he ever anticipated. And so, you know, I think the film has plenty of, I think it ultimately does sympathize with Patricia Neal, but I think, I think the film understands that eh, we're all kind of responsible for lonesome roads. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Without, (laughs) without, uh, it's so, it's so hard to think of the line between, Okay, so Patricia Neal's character definitely becomes a willing accomplice. Yeah. But, you know, the enablement that starts, you know, she certainly, I mean, you know, without without the fact of the coincidence of her being in that jail talking to that dude, it doesn't right. happen. I mean, it's, it's for the sake of the plot, she sort of does need to become the accomplice. But, no. like, without that platform, it's it's interesting, like does he die in jail? I mean, not that jail for that offense, right? but you know, oh, they, yeah. it's given, given recidivism in every, every period of our culture. Um, like at what, like, is that just the road he was on and the road he won't get off? Uh, probably. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, you know, he's able to play the guitar and sing, but I don't think he, <laughs> I don't think he has the, the show business savvy to get anything beyond like just a small yeah. bar or something like that. If he's able to get paid to do it at all. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so she is, and you know, early on, she's just in the same way that he didn't expect to be nationally mm-hmm. famous. She wasn't expecting to catapult him to national fame. She just thought, Oh, this will work well for my small radio station that I host a show, you know, uh, 
that I am a host for. When you just reminded me <laughs> of, I think maybe in a, in a movie of extremes and that uh, exploits to affect uh, hyperbole. I, I think you just reminded me of like a really fascinating um, complexity in her characters that she simultaneously fills the role of the the emblem of purity that gets corrupted. Sure. And, uh, you know, this sort of political operator enabler. Um, and, and there's not really a transition between the two. She, there, there are scenes in which she's both. Yeah. And anyway, I, I don't think I realized till that till this moment, but I really like that complexity. Yeah. It's in her excellent performance. It is, it is unfortunate that his performance is so big because I do think the smaller, the performances that need to be smaller and more grounded, they do get sort of, they're sort of forgotten, which again, it's understandable to a certain extent, but you do need a stabilizing performance like hers, like Walter Matthau's, uh, so that we recognize some level of reality. Um, and, and yeah, and, and I think her, her character is, as you say, remarkably complex. The film does not fully let her off the hook, but it is still sort of rooting for her. Mm. Um, do you think the film from the word go is suspicious of Lonesome Roads? Or do you think that, do you think the film is getting caught up in his charisma as well? And then eventually turns, or do you think no. the film is just like, I don't like this guy. Yeah. I mean, especially as a first timer, yeah. um, just that, that opening scene, it's, it's not, it's not like the, the way it's framed, the way it's shot, the way it's acted. It's not, um, that, that, opening scene in the prison where he gets, you know, discovered. Yeah. Um, it's, this guy is, I think the best, the best we can give it is <laughs> this guy is funny. Yeah. It's not, this guy is, you know, there's really something here. This is a man of substance or yeah. a man of f folksy charm. Yeah. You know, he starts, getting woken up from a drunken stupor where he tries to fight immediately <laughs> yeah. and then negotiates a better deal. Yeah. You know, he's kind of a shark and a schmuck from, from the top. I mean, funny, fun, yeah. to, fun to watch, but yeah. yeah, I think, I think in what film... universe other than our current political environment, is that a virtue? All right. Look who <laughs> created a transition for us. All right. So, uh, listeners, as, as, uh, as I said, uh, this episode is going to get, uh, uh, more than a little political and that's okay. Um, and I have, you know, uh, Josh and I, before the, before the election, we did that episode about, uh, the best of enemies, um, which is, a, have you seen it? It's a documentary. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. I liked it quite a bit. Um, and you know, uh, it, it's, it's difficult because I Buckley Buckley kills his performance as Buckley. I mean, just nails it. I'm not quite sure what joke you're making here. Yeah. It's just, the dude is a force. It is not for good. In my opinion, I think a force for awesomeness yeah. in certain ways. Um, but, uh, it does seem like somebody should have played him by now. Like he should be a character in, in either his own film or somebody else's film. Mm. It seems like some actor would look at that and be like, Oh boy, yeah. here we go. Yeah. Um, Gore Vidal as well. Now that I think about it, oh, but I yeah, think larger than life dudes, um, just, Everybody sounds like, you know, it's appropriate that they got Kelsey Grammer and John Lithgow, like two guys who to, to, uh, anytime they, they, uh, oh, they are, are reading from something they yeah, wrote. I don't remember that. Kelsey Grammer does, uh, Buckley and John right. Lithgow does, uh, Vidal. Um, so these two very 
Shakespearean uh, theatrical actors to play two very Shakespearean theatrical uh, people. But um, but yeah, so I, if you're if you're fa- Facebook friends with me, then you might see the the random political post. Uh, I try to avoid it on Twitter where I can. Uh, partially because so i have four twitter accounts three of them have my name on them one does not uh one is uh, although you know what there are enough hints that you could probably find it if you were looking um but uh, i have that one just so that's where i try to keep my politics not merely what i say but also who i follow um it just uh it gives me the freedom to say the things that I want to say the way I want to say them. And I try and I, I don't really troll people. Like so I don't many like Russian bots before you. Exactly. What? Well, you know, that's like, uh, have you read that? Was the, was the Twitter thing that extremely alarming, um, deep dive by the guardian from a few days ago about, no. about, um, intelligence warfare. It's, Oh gosh, it's crazy. The number, the number of accounts on, on Twitter that are Russian bots, just waiting, not tweeting, until they're activated by by certain trending topics that only exist in order to make topics trend toward oh. toward the political goals of a certain faction. It's the numbers okay, are I see. the numbers are staggering and frightening. So anyway, I was I was making a horribly esoteric joke. I am astonished. And may, and this might uh, but that article. I don't know exactly. If you want to get, get real it. scared about the the direction of technology in our lives. It's also an excellent, just an excellent piece of journalism, but it's scary. Which there's so much to talk about uh, based on the conversation that you and I had beforehand. There's so much to talk about. Sorry guys, we already mined all the gold. Yeah, sorry. Uh, We're just gonna have to go uh, back a few election cycles and talk about something that's not even current. Uh, Mondale, what's your, what's your thought of Mondale? Oh man, really gets a bum rep. I think he was an excellent candidate. No, that's the hill I'm going to die on. Um, but, uh, so there's a lot to talk about here and, you know, we're going, if you're somebody who is a Republican and you're in favor of Donald Trump, then this is not going to be a great episode for you. Um, if you're somebody who thought I wasn't hard enough on Donald Trump during the election, then you're going to really like this. Uh, but I also want to pivot, not, f- I want to, not unlike in discussing Lonesome Roads, we eventually arrive at Marsha and the various people around him and just the general culture that allowed Lonesome Roads to have this platform. I think it is worth talking about. Yes, we are going to talk about Donald Trump, but we're also going to talk about the idea of Donald Trump and the idea of populism and the kind of thing that allows this to happen. Um, and we'll, I guess we'll lead with this, um, that... In, in our lifetime, we're both in our mid-30s, in our lifetime, there's been uh, something of a shift as far as what people look for in politicians, even presidents. Um, you know, with Donald Trump, you've got some people saying like, well, he's not, he's just saying, you know, the truth or rather the truth as he sees it. He's saying his opinion. He's not censoring himself. You know, he's saying what we're all thinking. Uh I hope that's not true, but there, there are people that, that appreciated his, his willingness to just speak Mm. his mind. Then you had Obama, whose ability to work with film, TV, music, the internet, especially Mm. his, his ability to, to maneuver within that, 
to court certain audiences and make him seem like a cool president. And there was a certain coolness to him, but you know, is coolness. Why is coolness that important? Hmm. Then you go back to George W. Bush and he was the guy that you could have a beer with. Then you go back to Clinton and he was still kind of the old guard, but at the same time, you know, he was on Arsenio Hall playing the saxophone and all that sort of thing. And I think when you go back further than him, I think there's still an element of the president and maybe even senators and congressmen, like they should be maybe not necessarily the best of us, but people who are able to operate on a higher level politically than we are. But for some reason in the last 25 years, there has been this pivot to, I want the president to reflect me, Mm. uh, not the best version of me, not my, not even my ideals, but I want them, you know, Oh, the pre, uh, you know, uh, Obama makes a, makes a basketball bracket or, Oh, so-and-so loves this movie. Mm -hmm. Why does that, officially matter like why is it so important that politics reflect my life not not merely the things that would make my life better that's understandable but my life like why did we start to value that yeah i think i think i'm of two minds well at least two minds on that but i i think one one of the trends from my limited perspective in my 35, well, 36 now, years. Happy birthday. Why, thank you. And to you, sir. Indeed. Um, is is that it, it's an exploitation, maybe by accident at first, but certainly intentionally the last few cycles, sure. of something that's always been there. The, the, the realization that what voters over time have gravitated toward is personality at least as much as policy. Um, and I think that balance has shifted even more so, but yeah, I, I would really put my finger on sort of the, the, the title shift in what had, you know, before then just trying really hard not to say heretofore, um, the, the title shift at, at that, that W Bush election of dude, I could literally see being at my bar drinking a beer (laughs) next to me and, um, I, I think there's actually some very positive aspects to that. I do. Um, but that, that, that was something unprecedented that up to that point, the presidency was, was more of an ask. The president, the president was more typically an aspirational yeah. character, someone with aspirational education, someone with, you know, uh, aspirational vocabulary. Yes. Oh man, that W that W lexicon. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, like, yeah, I think, so I was saying, I, I think it's a, an observation of reality that was always, already there. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's been exacerbated by our general cult of personality, which starts at ourselves. You know, there, how many books about narcissism yeah. have been on the New York Times bestseller list over the 10 years? I mean, it's just, it's something our culture didn't talk about until we had smartphone reflecting pools um, right. Like that. I, I think it, that really is a shift that we, that we can't ignore. And just like, just like Kennedy doesn't beat Nixon without the advent of TV. Sure. Just like Obama can't get, um, small donor funding without the internet. Mm-hmm. So too can Trump not get elected without Twitter. Yeah. And so let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the internet because, you know, this, 
like I said, it started a little bit with with Clinton as far as using pop culture, but I, you know, it really this attitude Blair really in the sacks in. with shades on Arsenio. Yeah, it's so you he, look dude, back, but it he seems, can kind of play. No, he can. Like That's, I mean, that wasn't that wasn't like I I you know I played for ten years in my youth. That was I I still practice yeah. playing. It was it's impressive to watch. Yeah. Like anytime somebody, anytime a politician like is passionate about anything that anything even vaguely artistic, you know, it, it, it makes me excited. Or when the first pitch is anywhere near the play. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. George W. Bush pitched a pretty good uh, first pitch. He owned the Rangers for a while. I should (laughs) I Boy. Yeah. Um, And so that's the, that's the single most damning quote about, about W's biography. Um, I want to get this quote exactly right, but it was something like, when they were talking about at the advent of the wild card in the nineties, mm-hmm. it was something like history will look back on the advent of the wild card as baseball's worst decision or something <laughs> like that. Just like, actually that's everything that's fun in baseball now. And I don't know anything about baseball. So listeners, awesome. I it's hope you enjoyed the that. wild card. Yeah. Um, so to talk about, you know, the, the environment under which, suddenly the 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 president or politicians reflecting who we are i do think that it's not a coincidence that it comes about when the internet really comes into prominence and becomes part of our everyday lives and mm. and i guess you could probably branch out and say social media um you know friendster myspace Ooh. facebook twitter <laughs> uh instagram snapchat you know uh where you're, and then honestly, now I sort of wish that we did not have the ability to mute people on Facebook, hmm. either friend them or unfriend them. But like, no, if you're friends with this person, you are committed to who they are. I like the idea of, of you, you have to deal with people that you, whose opinions you, you might not like. Um, but that's the thing is the, the internet and I'm going to sound Jeff, we're about to sound very old oh, yeah. and crotchety. Let's, let's, let's do it. Yeah. We both have some gray in our beard at this point. And yeah, I've so got, I've, I've had a daughter for four years. There you exactly go. four years of gray in my beard. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, did it kick in right no, there? Like, oh, that's wow. not just a joke. Yeah. It is a joke. It's like when somebody becomes president and their, their oh, hair boy. just gets, those pictures are so depressing. <laughs> it looks so much more haggard at the end. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. But the nature of the internet and especially what the internet is now, which is, you know, it's literally in your pocket at any time. Mm. If you want to know anything, uh, you can just pull the internet out of your pocket and look it up. Um, you can talk to anybody. You can take a photo of yourself at any time and tell and show it to everybody. Um, there's a lot of great things about that, but I think it definitely does emphasize. I think it definitely plays to our inherent narcissism, uh, and so obviously if we want our circles to reflect us, if we want, uh, by which I mean like our social circle circles online where we mute people or unfriend people that we don't agree with, we, we subscribe to Twitter feeds that we, of, of people we like and people we agree with, then yeah, obviously we would want our politicians who are supposed to represent us. We want them to very much represent us us specifically. And I think that that is on one level. Yes. You don't want somebody who thinks he's so much better than everybody else. But at the same time, if you're running for office, you probably do think you're better than everyone else to a certain degree. Yeah. Well, does accept that. That's an interesting question. 
because does exceptional. And I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I must feel in some sense that I'm exceptional if I'm trying to do uh, crazy things like tell my own stories on a big scale. And, sure. You know, um, but like, d- does a feeling that you're exceptional or that you possess exceptional stories or, or whatever it is, like, does that mean better than, and I think if you're a Christian, the answer must be no, you know, we're literally right. directed to, to think of ourselves, to think of others as better than ourselves. And I, I, I mean, I think that's a tension that's so challenging as to be nearly impossible, Sure, but I don't think it's in fact impossible. Yeah, I think, you know, as somebody who uh, seems to think people want to hear what I have to say to the tune of three podcasts and eventually, hopefully, a teaching career. Um, yeah, it's it, it is strange because on one level, it's like, well, I must not be very humble. And I know I'm not super humble, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, but somebody needs to say stuff. And I feel like I'm uniquely equipped. That doesn't mean I'm better than people. In fact, when you have three podcasts, I think with each new podcast you get, you become worse than most people. But, uh, but this is where I feel like I'm supposed to be. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as, as long as I don't start to think I'm better than people. Well, and as long, as long as you keep things in perspective, like our, our rugged individualist culture values leadership over other skills. Sure but it's not better than other skills. So it's false humility. If you say something like I'm not a leader when you are uh, by Mm -hmm. virtue of your talents, or I'm not a speaker when you are by virtue of your talents, what's wrong is, you know, the false humility of saying, well, I'm not, I'm not those things when you are. And what's wronger still is saying that because our culture values it, it's more important than being a servant. Yeah. Because what our subculture, uh, the Christian faith. Yeah values overall is being a servant. And if you're going to be a leader, be a servant leader. So if, so how does this play into the idea that I think not me, Tyler, but just in the general sense, I think I am qualified to be the president of the most powerful country in the world. Like there has to be a certain degree, not better than uh, I'll even, I think think you've already given too much credit. Okay. I, I think, I think you've got the wrong frame. I mean, I think qualification was not a consideration for the gentleman in question. Sure. I think it was raw ambition to title. It's literally, I want to be this. Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, I, I don't, he, he didn't, he didn't, no, he does claim expertise. Claiming expertise is different than claiming qualification. You know, I know more than the generals. I know more than anyone. Um, That's a tricky one. I wonder I guess, I guess you're right. I guess there's a claim to qualification, but the, the qualification is basically I'm me. Yeah. That's, that's my qualification is, you know, yeah. I trump others. Uh, you know, I can grab them by the, because what, I'm the famous. what have you. Yeah. That's yeah. what fame, like I, yeah. I heard a, I was listening to a new podcast that I like a lot, uh, called with friends like these and it's brand it's, they've done one episode and it's about bridging that gap. Like, we who voted for this uh, this person, we love and are married to and are sons and daughters of people yeah. who voted for that person, and we need to talk to each other. Yeah. And uh, the the woman who um, who does the podcast, I forgot her name, she she had this line where it's clear that Trump thinks of famous people as their own gender. And I think the more precise comment is as their own class. Sure. Like as exhibited by when you're famous, you can do it in that same, uh, no. e, 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 you know, secret tape about grabbing them. So here's, okay. So here I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to speak very negatively. 
one of the big things during the primary that bothered me about the possibility of Donald Trump getting the nomination and then eventually winning, though none of us thought he was going to, um, is that I genuinely believe, and I say this once again, knowing about my own little podcasting empire, but I definitely, I, I believe he's a full on narcissist. And, and I remember just, if nothing else, I thought like, we really don't want to give a narcissist just, just on a personal level. The worst thing you can do to a narcissist is indulge them, uh, and let them have everything they want and everything they think they're entitled to. And so to give him the nomination, to have him do well at all in any primaries, much less to give him the nomination and then to elect him president, it basically, it affirms every single theory or philosophy he has. If he thinks that it's okay for famous people to treat non-famous people however they want, we have, by electing him, having heard that and electing him, uh, we are affirming that he is correct in that thinking, or at least we, or that we just don't care. Um, now that is during the campaign. That was the one thing he apologized for and good for him. But at the same time, come on. And I, and so I feel like, you know, that's something that, that, that we need to consider when dealing with any politician. But when we're dealing with populism, uh, we are dealing with someone who is going to tell us what we want to hear and, and speaks this larger idea of what they think people want to hear. And when we elect them, we're saying, yes, you're right. Keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, and that's, it's honestly why I was really, I almost didn't want to vote for president, uh, mm. this year because I didn't like Trump at all. He was not on the table. I considered voting for Hillary, but I didn't agree with anything that she believed. And I also thought that there are some things that she had done and said that I didn't like. Mm. And then I thought, I don't trust that. Uh, and then I did, then it's like, okay, so let's see who's running for a libertarian. You're like, where's the, where's the nearest garbage can I can put my vote in? It, pretty much. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so, um, I mean, in California, it doesn't matter. It's right. going to go to Hillary true, anyway, true, but, true. um, but, and then I saw Gary Johnson, I thought like, you know, I, I like some of his record as a governor, but at the same time, I do believe that you can't, when you're, when you're president, you, it's not just about the things you're able to accomplish. It is also about being the figurehead of the, and the, the, the face of the country. And Gary Johnson, while I think he was a fairly humble guy, I think that he just wasn't able to present himself well. I don't think he spoke well. And I don't think, and I think he had like too many flubs and I eventually voted for him because I, I felt like I had to vote for somebody, but I wasn't happy with any of it. And I had this thought of like, whoever I vote for, that is me ultimately saying I am, I'm okay. You know, a vote, a, a vote is simply saying like, yes, it's not yes, but I didn't like when he did, when he said this one yeah. thing, you know, it's, it, it could be seen as a full endorsement of everything that person has said and done. And it's just like, Oh, it's, and that's, know. and that's, that's a crazy place we've gotten ourselves into Yeah, where the, um, you know, but her emails. Sure. Um, the, you know, when you, when you criticize one candidate, the debate is framed that you're defending every part of the other, the other side's personal history, belief system, position right. platform. And, you know, when we get to there, we do crazy things. Yeah. 
you know, lesser evilism is not crazy. Actually, that's a practical. Yeah, that's a practical choice. Um, it's an unfortunate one, but it's a practical choice. And um, I think I think this this like tension of bad choice A or worst choice B or throw away vote choice C. Yeah. I think it really, at its core, gets down to like some of the the cancerous elements of our political system that have just finally come up to the surface and I think resulted in a lot of engagement. And I think long-term that's the really beautiful flower that's blooming out of this um, pile of poop uh, is, you know, an engaged democracy. Like our, our system of government was designed to function with a deeply engaged citizenry. Which speaks to honestly, as much as I might bash the internet, that's where the internet can be, Mm. great is that you are able to engage whether it it could just mean reading articles you wouldn't get to otherwise like reading magazines that you know your local grocery store doesn't carry uh and then find and then yes finding groups of people that are like-minded now ideally you're not only talking to those people but you know sometimes you can feel very alone it could be mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or politically, you can feel very alone where you are physically, but then online you can actually find that, oh no, I'm not alone. Other people, this is important to other people. But also I'd rather you feel alone than be a brother with a bunch of people who are only reading fake news. Sure. (laughs) Well, mm, mm, hang on now. Yes. From a psychological Uh, health aspect, we can debate. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, Oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about. And and we don't have to cover all of it. Uh, I do want to try and keep it more specifically to this idea of like, you know, so uh, as I mentioned in my, in my film history class, we were talking about McCarthyism. So I, uh, mm. I, yes, it's because of the movie, good night and good luck, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of Edward R. Murrow. I have this like set of like his, uh, of like broadcast, not merely McCarthy broadcast, but just all over like his mm-hmm. celebrity interviews. And then just him talking about the medium, like he was a brilliant guy. And so I played a, a clip of, of, um, Murrow talking about McCarthy and he said, he says he did not create this, uh, I forget if he says environment or era. I don't remember. I'll say environment. He did not create this in in talking about McCarthy. He didn't create this environment of fear. He merely exploited it. Mm. And that's the thing. I think Trump did not create this climate climate. That's it. Uh, he merely exploited it. And so, yes, I'm fine with talking about that exploitation, but I also want to talk with the creation of that, about the creation of that climate. Um, and you know, and and I, I, I do, sort of feel like, you know, we're that I'm, I'm tilting at windmills and that I, I, I hope I'm not just talking to people that, that agree with me a hundred percent. Well, I, I think, I think you've got a better shot at not doing that than most because of the, the, the confluence of, of, you know, operating philosophies of your podcast is such mm-hmm. that, you know, there's, there's groups that don't usually intersect, you know, people of faith, people of strong aesthetic and creative interests, I'm not saying those are mutually exclusive. I think throughout history, they really go hand in hand, but in our cultural American moment, they don't. I think you've got a better shot than a lot of us at at not being in that echo chamber. But yeah, what else was I? Anyway, I do want to say Murrow was, man, what a giant. Uh, who who, Who do we have now? Chuck Todd. I'm a big Chuck Todd guy. Meet the press. Chuck Todd's not, I like. he's not bad. And then uh, more so Tapper, Jake sure. 
Tapper. And I'm sorry, but if you think that dude is partisan, you cray. You got to go back. You got to go back and watch what he did in the Obama press corps room. Um, now I'm not super thrilled at the word cray. Yeah, cray you mean cray? you mean you prefer cray cray? Yes, please say the whole term. Yeah. Um, we don't like yeah. abbreviations here. I will say that like there's a number. Of, I do uh, I do like he doesn't have a huge audience, but I do like Ben Shapiro because he does. Mm. He's made it clear he is not a Trump guy, and so if there's something Trump likes that he it does that he likes, he'll say it. But he will also he he takes that attitude that I forget now. If you and I were saying it on mic or off, this idea of like. If the Democrats did this, yeah. would you be okay with it? The answer is no. Yeah. And so why are you okay with it now? Like stick with principles. Yeah. And then I also, in my own way, I do kind of like Shepard Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, he He's the Fox News guy, but he historically will say what is true. And, yeah, there's some there's you know. some real guts in the context of his network that thinks the, you know, the few moments post, post-Trump inauguration where he's you know, yeah. gotten pretty fiery. About yeah. things that are not okay from a conservative point of view in yeah. this administration. Yeah, it's, you know, and that's the thing is, uh, so over at BP after the uh, election, we we uh, gave, I think, for, for several weeks, we gave all of uh, everything that we sold, like all of our premium episodes and mm. stuff. We gave all of those proceeds to the, uh, uh, oh, shoot. Some journal, some journalistic freedom uh, oh, nice. charity because it's a thing that I feel very passionate about. Mm. Um, because while I do believe that the mainstream media, the MSM, while I do think that they uh, trend liberal, uh, and while that may bother me on some abstract level, uh, eh, yeah. it's what we have. So I don't like the idea of restricting it uh, in any in any way. You know. Mm. Um, it allowed Murrow to not single-handedly take out McCarthy, but he played a big role. He was a very trusted man in journalism. Uh, it allowed Woodward and Bernstein to, you know, expose Watergate at a time that no one thought that was an, an important story at all. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my question now is, and this is one I've been talking with various friends about for the last few weeks. In the days of Watergate, Republican, uh, and I, and I, at the moment I'm talking about Republicans, but I think it could go either way at the moment, at the time of Watergate, Republicans read those stories and they said, I don't like this at all. I don't like that. The president did this. They put pressure on their representatives and then Nixon lost any kind of support Republican and certainly Democrat, but he lost any kind of support in the, in Congress. And he eventually resigned because he knew that I'm this is not going to go great for me. Yeah. I do wonder given just how divided things are politically and, and how much everybody's digging in their heels. I wonder if it's, you know, if, if journalism did an amazing, I say journalism, like it's one guy, but you know what I mean? Yeah. If, if the journalistic community, if they did their job and they exposed something full on, like undeniably like not open to interpretation, illegal, Whoever the president is, whether it be uh, Obama or Hillary or Trump, are we so divided that the the days of your own party saying, you know what, this isn't right, get him out or her out, like, is that even possible anymore? Well, I think there's so much to unpack there. Mm-hmm. I think the one of the through lines in that that I really want to rear back against, uh, because I'm nothing if not a horse. Sure. Um, I think there's a line of false equivalency running through that thing. Okay. 
which it, which goes back to your point earlier of if the tables were turned, can you possibly imagine this going the same way sure. on the partisan divide? And I would suggest that, look, you're talking to a dude who holds a number of positions that would certainly be described as conservative. Mm-hmm. You're talking to a dude who voted for John McCain. Mm-hmm. Uh Really? Way, way back when. Interesting. Um, not versus Obama. Oh, okay. Um, versus versus okay. W. Okay, a long time ago. Um, wrote him in that election. Okay. V- voted primary, voted and wrote him in. Um, I'm I'm a person who gravitates toward people of character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do think rather than people I think reflect me, it's more people I think have ideals in some sense. So to that point of ideals, I I am not Democrat and I am not Republican, but. As a person with that track record I just mentioned, and a person who thinks the best, my favorite critiques are coming from conservatives, are coming from David Frum, are coming from The Atlantic, The Economist, you know, The National Review. Mm-hmm. Uh, as that person, I think it takes a, a, an amazing degree <laughs> of head in the sand uh, ostrichness to say, to put up this false equivalence of, if the situation were reversed and it were the Democratic president doing these things with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, sure. to imagine a reality in which the Democrats don't push back to an infinitely higher, de- infinitely, obviously not that, uh, an extremely higher degree than the Republicans are pushing back toward Trump. I think that takes an amazing amount of willful ignoring of facts on the ground. Because I mean, for, for one, we've already got, I think to get to this point with a man such as Trump, Mm -hmm. there have been so many compromises along the way Sure, that the heels are already dug in to such an extent that, I mean, you're, you're, you're in the quicksand up to your neck. So it's either either hoping that a miracle is going to happen, you're going to get the lasso, and at least you'll get the tax cuts you always wanted. I'm talking about Paul Ryan right now. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're going to sink. You're already most of the way towards sinking anyway, so let's just burn the whole thing down. Do you think that, because we were talking about Republicans right now, do you think that Republican, because that's we're talking about Congress now, right? but do you think Republican voters, do you think the voting populace is so divided that because ultimately like if the if if public opinion shifts then congress who didn't really like trump in the first place and didn't want him in there they wanted one of their own people in there like but they'll go along with him as long as he is popular with the base but if the base turns against him then i think congress would go along with it the question is would the base ever turn against him like what would he have to do he's already doing things that well, aren't when you talk about the base you're talking about 30 percent of the electorate yeah. I, I think there's 30% that will not change. I think that's more or less been proved. Yeah. But, and right now we're at 36% approval. Yeah. I think once you get to that 30, the, the people that won't change, that's low enough. Yeah. And at that point for Republicans in the house, I mean, look, I've been wrong a million times about what would be, what would be a bridge too far for them. But I believe at that point, since, since it's been revealed, um, you know, through guys like Paul Ryan to a lesser extent, uh, Rubio, these, um, people who have built their image on sort of a, a man of honor kind yeah. of platform. And, you know, even McCain to a far more successful extent. Uh, the, the degree to which these guys have gone along with or endorsed, uh, I think it's been proved that there's not an ideological 
line in the sand, right. uh, actual principles, yeah. but I think the line then becomes political expediency. Yeah. And right now the calculation, like especially for Paul Ryan's kind of a poster boy, because like I think the I think the calculation now is like, okay, 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 whatever, 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 executive orders are fine. <coughs> I'm gonna get my tax cuts. Yeah. As soon as political expediency dictates that it is a better choice for your chances of reelection and your platform to cut bait on this dude, as soon as that shift happens, and I do think it happens around the 30% approval rating, then we're fine with starting impeachment. I mean, especially yeah. when a dude that we really agree with on principles, Pence, yeah. is, is, our, is our guy who's going to come in. Yeah, it's... And that's, I mean, everything I just said is extraordinarily depressing for the health of our democracy. Yeah. That none of it comes down to the amount of hate he spews or law he breaks... Yeah, it is all going to turn on political expediency. Yeah. And just, you know, as I was saying, although I don't know if I ever said this on the show that like during the, the primary, you know, there's this because it really what it came down to Trump, Rubio and uh, Cruz. Mm -hmm. And now if it had been those three in January, mm -hmm. when everybody who was below 5% decided to drop out as they should have, then theoretically some of the more reasonable voters would go to one of these other two guys. But there is this element of momentum in a primary and I guess in a general as well, um, that if somebody is winning, people eventually do want to get on the winning team, even if they don't like that particular guy. And so by the time people start dropping, uh, dropping out, and then it is between Trump and Cruz and even Rubio's gone and he stayed longer than he should have. Um, well, now Trump is winning and yeah. people want to win, even if they agree more with Cruz. And so, and I look at that and I just feel like, but he doesn't, uh, first off, let's say that he's a full on conservative. He's a full on Republican. He hasn't been Republican long enough to even know how to be a Republican. So he's not going to be conservative. And does that like, does that bother you at all? Or is it simply that? Is it simply that he's the one that's winning, he's the one that can win, and in the end, what we want is power? Okay, Ty Ty. Now we get to the tough questions I okay. have for, I have for Sorry. you. Sorry, yeah. Uh, perfect segue. Um, so I think what you're... you're I, I that Ty Ty is patronizing, by the way. Go on. <laughs> uh, well, good. I patronized uh, just right at the beginning All right. when I was trying to convince. Uh, good job, Newberg. Uh, so... I think what you're saying, and please stop me if I'm wrong, okay. is that your analysis is that given where things went, given the divide on principles between candidate Trump and the party throughout the primaries and where we ended up, like the degree of onboardness we got by the end, uh, what, what perhaps you're saying, this is my analysis, what it proved was those high-minded ideals about fiscal conservatism and state freedom, uh, I'm sorry, state independence and individual freedom and liberty, uh, turns out those weren't the most important thing. Yeah. Okay, let me go further now. Okay. So, uh, in days of yore, with aforementioned men of honor, i.e. Paul Ryan, mm -hmm. um, McCain, etc., uh, I feel like the narrative was always, we've got these high-minded principles mm -hmm. that the Democrats aren't behind, um, that Americans truly value, you know, uh, wrap ourselves in the flag. Um, and you know, there's this thing off in the periphery 
the, there's the racism. And you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's not us. Mm. That's just kind of on the side. Right. Um, I submit to y'all that if in the end, all those big principles got ditched and pooped on, and the racism got elevated and amplified, maybe that was the thing the whole time. Like, I think what's, what's, I, I, I think what's really gnawing at me mm-hmm. as a person who still holds some conservative positions, the degree to which I'll say we in the evangelical subculture, which, you know, even if, even if it's become an increasingly problematic term that uh, implies a lot of things I'm not, um, I think the degree to which we allowed ourselves to become single issue voters, mm-hmm. uh, that issue being abortion, yeah, uh, allowed us to be so severely and chronically co-opted that so many things got Trojan horsed, uh, yeah, Trojan horse having uh, abortion written on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, principles that are truly antithetical to a Christian worldview, say preemptive war in my opinion sure um that we're at a place where there's just no turning back we've done it for 20 years our eggs are in this basket our heels are dug in and we're almost unable to reflect on oh wait a minute abortion rates go down under democratic administrations oh 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 oh, wait a minute uh deficit spending goes up under Republican administrations. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. Republican policies toward the poor are real bad. Um, I I, I guess I want to know from a person who I I believe still identifies as, as a conservative. Sure. Like what, what is sort of those like big foundational issues? Like are those questions you've worked through and like come to answers or like, where are you at on that kind of stuff? Well, uh, hang on a sec. Okay. Uh, sorry, I looked at the time and realized, oh boy. Seven hour podcast, yeah, let's okay. go. All right. I do have papers to read today, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, as long as it's before midnight, it should be fine. Um, yeah, my next appointment's not until six. Let's go. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, don't you have somewhere to be? But that's yeah. fine. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, so I first became conservative as a function of uh, like economic theory that I found invigorating. Hmm. Uh, so Milton Friedman. And he himself and, and uh, Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams. Um, and I remember there was uh, a question when in 1980, so Reagan was the incoming president. Somebody mm-hmm. asked uh, uh, Milton Friedman, like, you know, um, would you ever want to be like an economic advisor for President Reagan? And he said, uh, I have been asked. And I said, no, because I want to be free he goes, obviously I would love for them to take my advice, but politics is so different than principle. It should be the same. And sometimes it comes through, but he said, I want, he goes, I don't want to censor what I have to say because of political expediency. Um, and so along those lines, like I am a conservative and I will try and I, and I often try to vote for the person that will fit most with what I think, but obviously that's never going to work uh, mm. completely. Uh, and while I don't consider myself a single issue voter, oddly enough, the big issue for me this past election was executive orders. Uh, strange as that may sound. No, no. Um, I, I think, I think that's something that really gets lost in all this. It's not a King. 
Exactly. It's not exactly. a king. I mean, and clearly like, we have a guy who thinks he's a king. Undoubtedly. Uh, and that's the thing is like, and like Bush really, I mean, every, every president does executors, but like Bush really kicked him up. Obama did a lot of them too. And, and I just wonder if it's one of those things, it's like, is that genie ever going to go back in the bottle? And I, and so I looked at the landscape and I saw like, okay, well, there's no reason for Hillary to not issue a bunch of executive orders because if, if people view her presidency as an extension of the Obama presidency, then why would she, Mm. uh, Trump obviously is going to be big on executive orders. Um, and so then ultimately it's like, okay, so who wouldn't, it's like, well, Cruz is something of a purist, almost to an off-putting degree. And I actually don't think he would issue a number of executive orders. I think he very much uh, is in favor of Congress, you know, making whatever changes need to be made. Uh, so I don't think or he would do it. maybe just because he's been, been a member of the Congress so far. It could be that. Yeah, things I believed about him, I don't I don't know what to think. Like I don't, re-embracing I Trump, like I don't, what am yeah. I supposed to think about things you say? And he, and he held off on that for like a super long time. But again, ultimately it all comes down to power and this idea of, well, the base seems to really like Trump. And suddenly I look like the jerk who is holding off. Yeah. And even during the, the convention did not, <laughs> did not endorse oh. him. It's like, it's like watching WWF. Well, WWE for you young kids. There you go. Hey, uh, yeah, we just dated ourselves there. I the, knew exactly what you with meant. The booing. <laughs> it was a lot, a lot like the World Wildlife um, Fund. <laughs> That's why they changed so, it. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So many pandas. Um, but, uh, and so that's the thing. And so, uh, you know, and honestly, honestly, as I've gotten older, um, abortion has become a bigger deal to me. Mm-hmm. It has not become the only deal, but it is a bigger deal. But I also recognize that no no issue exists in a vacuum. Everything is related. Everything is connected. And so, you know, for, for example, like with, with Obamacare for Republicans say like, let's repeal. It's like, they say repeal and replace, and that's all well and good, but you can't simply replace it with the old system. You need to make changes to the old system if you're going to make this case at all. And so it's like, okay, let's make abortion illegal. It's like, okay, that's fine. But are we going to be in favor of child health care? Yeah. If so, then let's do it. And that fits very much in into what I think I was saying off mic about people. <laughs> uh, we talked for like an hour before yeah, we started recording. Yeah, it's getting really great. Um, but what I think the role of the government is uh, as far when it comes to like stuff like welfare and healthcare, it's to take care of people that can't take care of themselves. And that includes children. And I wonder how many people would consider abortion uh, are considering abortion because they feel like they are, they can't take care of their kid, uh, their kid's healthcare or just general, like can't send them to school or can't feed them or something like that. Like it's not the kid's fault that they were born into a, a bad situation. And so we should, and there's nothing they can do about, they can, there's nothing they can do to get themselves out of that situation. So I feel like I don't think it, it conflicts with the idea of conservatism at all to say like, yeah, we, if somebody is able-bodied to, and, and are able to like improve their situation, then we can maybe try to help them from an opportunity standpoint, but we can't prop them up their whole lives as opposed to a kid. Mm-hmm. And so like abortion for me then relates to the idea of child health, healthcare and child welfare and that sort of thing. And so like, it's, it's tough, but all of these are, are broad principles that are rooted in certain ideas, uh, that 
are yes, a bit, probably a bit high-minded and maybe even a little bit idealistic, but I don't want to be a full, full on cynic all the time. Well, I, I think like something in there that I can really relate to that I, I just like, as I, as I try to approach politics, I mean, you know, it's the art of compromise and we're inc- increasingly in, in a climate where nobody wants to compromise. Yeah. That like, I, I feel like a thread through a lot of what you're saying is try as it's become like this concept of compassionate conservatism. I think there's a lot in there, uh, in terms of ideals I can relate to, but unfortunately in practice, I've never seen. And so at a certain point, I think in my political thinking, it's, it's like, you know, people, people speak about, uh, you know, anti-abortion, um, legislation in terms of compassion, but in history, never have such plans been paired with extensive prenatal care, extensive economic support. And so again, like I'm very, I'm very stubborn with my labels. And so I, I still use the word, although I probably shouldn't evangelical because I, my faith is one of the first things I talk about with people, even in my, even in my work in a pretty, very secular environment, which has done wonders for my career. Sure. Um, so I still use the word evangelical because I believe my faith is something worth spreading, Mm -hmm. but it implies so many things that I don't believe in. I should probably give up, but I'm too stubborn. Likewise, I still use the phrase pro-life, mm-hmm. but like, I think the best articulation of my position ever was the one that Obama articulated, but because he was Obama and obstructionism was literally the policy of Republicans in the house and the Senate, nothing ever happened. He went further than the Clinton nomenclature. Yeah. I'm banging the table, um, which, you know, it means I'm a measured in response sure. to voice for change. Indeed. Um, you know, he went further than the, the Clinton nomenclature of, you know, safe, legal, and rare. And he actually formed a platform with a lot of evangelical input of, of um, what was the exact, I'm not going to get this perfect, but it's really close. A platform that sought, and this was very much against the Democratic establishment, uh, because by the way, in case you didn't know, um, Obama was a Christian, is a Christian, probably the second or third most credible Christian testimony of any president we've ever had, by the way. Um, he, the nomenclature was something like a, a platform that seeks to reduce the rate at which women seek out abortion. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was within the context of the Democratic Party, that was radical. And yeah. it was seen as an olive branch toward the right and the Republicans and something he did based on personal view. And it just got shut down because we're not going to work with Obama on everything. Right. So anyway, um, I think my challenge to the left is do not tell me that there is no from a purely, you know, I'm a Christian, but y'all aren't. I, that's fine. Um, as far as political compromise goes. Do not tell me there's no articulation of a pro-life position uh, that includes care for mothers, welfare for children, and a number of other compassionate positions, and that respects the rule of law, Mm -hmm. respects the constitutional fact that Roe v. Wade is a matter of settled law. Don't tell me there's no articulation of a pro-life position that isn't consistent with humanistic ideals. Don't tell me it's crazy to think of a baby in the womb as a life. Like I can listen to your position where you don't feel that way, sure. but don't tell me I'm crazy for any articulation of that view. And then yeah. on the right, do not, sir, use the phrase pro-life. If you're pro preemptive war, mm. pro mass incarceration, like pro pro death penalty in a lot of States with really questionable, yeah. questionable judicial systems. And, and so I think there's like a challenge for both sides 
but neither side can hear the challenge because we're just so entrenched. Yeah. It's, and you know, it, it, there's been this, and it's interesting you bring up the, the pro-life thing and what you say is like being in favor of like war and the death penalty and that sort of thing. Um, because so often I've heard people say, people on the left say, you know, don't say you're pro-life and then you don't want to like fund schools and stuff like that. Because my response to that is usually, okay, you've got a deal. Mm -hmm. I will fund as many schools as you want. Can you please stop snipping spinal cords Mm -hmm. for the love of God, please. Mm -hmm. Um, and over battleship pretension, David and I had a rather in-depth abortion discussion a few weeks ago, uh, and things are very civil and everything went fine, but boy, oh boy, that was, uh, exhausting is the word for it. But, but that's the thing is I was actually very excited because Mm. we had a a liberal Democrat conservative Christian talking about this and we were able to both articulate our side and we were both able to realize that the people on our sides are so terrible at understanding what the other person thinks that I don't hate women and he does not want to murder children, you know? Uh, and, and now while I ultimately think like erring on the side of life over not is even if it's the concept of life, that is my personal uh, opinion. It, it comes down to it's freedom versus it's freedom versus versus life. Mm. And he thinks that because this is because inside a woman, her freedom, her bodily autonomy takes priority. I think that that is a unique individual. And so it's it's its ability to live takes priority over her choice. That's what it ultimately comes down to. And if you look at it like that, mm-hmm. then, you know, we still don't agree, obviously, but it, it boils down so much. It, it's so much bigger than woman hater and baby killer, you know? And so it's, how do we get on this? <laughs> I don't I'm care. Sorry. I don't, this um, is, this is what we need to be talking about. I don't care. A face about. in the crowd. And so, um, <laughs> what? Yeah, I know. Um, but ultimately, and so there are, but there, there are other, there are other things that I'm conservative about despite people. I forget who it was. I think it was Jonah Goldberg who, who writes for, for national review. Mm-hmm. And he said that capitalism has been like historically, this tremendous force for economic progress for the largest number of people. And he said, the problem is it doesn't feel like it because unless you have a central organization like the government making a clear, making a clear decision and saying, we are doing this. That's a thing you can always point to and say, look at what they've done, positive Mm -hmm. or negative. Mm. Um, The nature of a free market is that it does Adam Smith. I'm going all the way back to Adam oh, Smith, yeah, Scottish, yeah. Uh, Scottish economist. He talked about that people acting in their own self-interest. You can call that selfishness if you want, or you could just say, I want my business to do well, mm-hmm. which is not, I think a selfish idea. Mm-hmm. You want your career to go well. I want mine to go well. Um, and that, but I also, and in the same way, like I also don't want to pay too much for a certain product. Mm-hmm. So like we're all balancing that all the time and we're all trying to make things best for our fan, for us and our families. And you would think that would be chaos, 
But oddly enough, it does work out where we, you know, you and I are, are negotiating the price of something and we have arrived at a place that yes, may, might not be ideal for either, either one of us, but we've arrived at a place where I have gotten something that I value. You've gotten something that you value. I have gotten the product that you are selling. You've gotten my money. And that it does seem to work out in a way that, that seems organized. He refers to it as the invisible hand. And what's odd is, and so all you can really do is look when, when you look at stuff like this, all I can really do is look at my own life and see if that has been true. I am married to a small business owner who has a number of employees and has operated her business for a long time. And I have found that to be mostly true that like, and I, and I work for a small business owner. You feel, you feel like your wife is representative of the baseline ethics and morality of the populace at large. Maybe. What? What am I, what is, who is the populace at large? The average, the average uh, dude or chick. Okay. Oh boy. (laughs) Chick. Yeah. Uh, see, yeah. I've been going to school. Kicking I've been it, back in school long enough to know that school. that would not be appropriate. True um, enough. But that's the thing is like the populace, it's that men in black line, you know, a person is smart. People are dumb. And in that same way, the populace, yeah, I don't know what the ethics of the populace well, but, is, but when it comes to a small business owner, then they, I, I have a general idea of what their, what their, uh, struggles can be. And yeah, they might. And who knows? They might, uh, they might choose something completely wrong and completely against the law or something like that. But at the same time, in my experience with small business owners that you can't keep that going for very long and still have a successful business. Corporations can do it, yeah. but small business owners cannot. Well, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. One, one is I'd like to kick back, uh, that that doesn't make any sense. That's not a phrase that you should use in this context. Kick it on back. I'd like to push back. Okay. Uh, against uh, the righty, the the righty interpretation of Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't say it, but it seems implied in what you said, as it is as a lot of righties flat out state mm-hmm. that Adam Smith was against regulation, and he wasn't. But no, um, I don't see it. I don't see it as that. And and I I think I agree with everything you said. If you add on vociferous government regulation, because I think that is what is largely missing in the conservative ethos mm-hmm. and largely missing throughout our history as a country with uh, vociferous regulation, I think that the better angels of our, you know, individual persons and this, you know, people's economic behavior get get pulled out and the demons are suppressed and i i think that's i mean i think that's been sorely missing i, I like i i think that's the part of i mean capitalism is the best system we've got again again like practicality i you know co- communism just don't work yeah. and i i would also say libertarianism just don't work right uh i think capitalism is the best we've got but capitalism without without regulation I, I do think is kind of the anarchy you alluded to like it it does get real bad well obviously you need you need a government to make sure that people hold up their end of the bargain and to keep people from murdering each other um, but that's the thing is I'm and I'm not well, but a, also I'm to not necessarily keep people from to. robber baroning each other I would add to that now how would you define that uh, well I think the distribution of wealth in this country uh, okay. historically, is to, to speak practically again, mm-hmm. uh, 
throughout any other any other culture throughout history, you know, right now uh, we just crossed this threshold. I think like three months ago, eight dudes, and that's that's gender appropriate. They're all men. Okay, eight dudes control half the world's wealth, mm-hmm. and in this country, it's what the the one percent is. What is the one percent? Is it sixty percent of wealth? Anyway, it's bad. Yeah. Um, those levels are are literally unsustainable to the point of revolution. Uh, I, that's not something I want. It's mm-hmm. certainly not something support. I support. I actually, you know, <laughs> I very much have a dedication to nonviolence. But like, let's speak practically then. Yeah. In environments with regulation, an economic system is more sustainable. You know, FDR came in. Uh, you know, for anyone complaining about tax rates, you know, we had a top, we had a top nominal tax rate of 93%. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rich dudes were welcoming FDR into office because the other options at that time, the populace was so no. upset. The other options were literal anarchists. No. And so they said, please FDR, take our money. And I think there's a, 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 a extreme degree of myopia, um, right now, especially in the halves of our society, to not see the value in other folks having a shot, uh, in, in the value of a higher tax rate that leads to a more equal educational playing field, which leads to the actual uh, American dream of eras past, where whatever your beginnings, you have a shot through a somewhat equal playing field of the educational system that's been eroded to, I mean, it's sort of laughable, the idea of an even educational playing field, that you can, that you can rise. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when we're missing that, society on the whole is, we're, we're rusting. We, we're, we're falling apart slowly, I'd say, but it's getting quicker and quicker. So the question then becomes to what, you know, what degrees are we talking about? You know, um, like, for example... The term fair share. What's the specific percentage on that? Uh, well, to be fair, not a phrase I used. Okay. No, I know. Um, I know. Sorry, I don't mean you. I mean in general. Well, yeah. I, I Again, I think it can be practical. I think we've got enough studies that show enough what we have committed to. In t- I just finished this book, Our Kids, mm-hmm. which was cited by Clinton and by Jeb Bush in this election cycle, the dude who wrote bowling alone, which is pretty well known you know, bowling alone was about like increasing dissociation, like less bowling leagues, more people bowling outside of a league and how that was emblematic of we're, we're not in community like we used to be. Hmm. And this book, our kids about growing gaps in the educational system and that relationship to class difference. So something like that, the amount of money it costs to bring something like equity into our educational system and thus bring, you know, bring a strong middle class back to America, which is good for everybody, including the rich folks. Sure. Like those are real numbers and I'm not an economist and I don't have them at hand, but that's a very practical place to start. And, you know, I've got good rich, good news for the rich people. I don't think that's a 93% nominal tax rate. I think maybe it's higher than, you know, a 5% effective tax rate because you get all your money based on real estate transactions and you get to, you get to write everything off as a depreciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's well. And so like a working person having to pay 
a 30% effective tax rate off their non-livable wage. Sure. And a rich dude, you know, like Warren Buffett's thing, please tax me more. Yeah. A rich dude uh, paying a far smaller tax rate than his secretary. That is messed up. That is I'd, not equity. I'd say 10% for everyone is fine. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'd have to cut a lot of spending, obviously. Military, if you want. Are you into that? Sure. Okay, we can all be friends. Like this table of two, we're all yeah. friends. Um, you know, and that's and this is where, yeah, where I probably fall in line more with libertarians than mm. uh, Republicans. Because I definitely understand, like, yes, you need a strong military. But, what, but it, the definition of strength changes when you start redefining the role of the military, uh, on a global scale, that's neither here nor there. Um, well, no, it's very much here and there, but, uh, but no, my point is that, um, so yes, you did not say fair share, but a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Uh, and one thing that has always bothered me is that like, say a percentage and we can talk about that. You say fair share, you can always add a percentage. You mm -hmm. can always add one per, uh, you know, one or 2% more and say fair. You know, I don't like, I don't like that rhetorical device, but I will also talk about the 1%. People fall in and out of the 1% all the time. It's not a locked number of people. People fall, people come in and out of the bottom 20% all the time. There's always going to be a top 1%. There's always going to be a bottom 20%. Um, and so like people make millions of dollars, they fall out of millions of dollars. You know, they, at the, at, at like the, at the 0.1%, like, like the people, the eight dudes you're talking about, like, uh, they're going to be fine. You know, I, they're not going to be dropping out anytime soon, but like, you know, at what, at what fine, at what, uh, financial level does 1% kick in? Like, when do you, when do you come into the 1% either in this country or globally? Well, fortunately statistics, math and science are available to us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, like I'm, I'm no expert. I just read one book mm -hmm. uh, recently that's like fresh in my mind. Two, two months from now, I'll, I'll have none mm -hmm. of this information. Um, but it is empirically knowable mm -hmm. that, no, we do not have this upward and downward mobility that you just described. To a far greater extent than ever in the history of our culture, those categories are extremely locked. Now, of course, like as you did in the anecdote you just told, you can always find multiple examples because we're a country of what, 300 million people? Uh, more than uh, that. You can now. always say there's lots. Yeah, yeah. there's always lots. Yeah. But that's why we generate big data to tell us that sure. there's less than ever and not only less, a lot less, a fraction of what there used to be. Okay. And, and, you know, this, uh, yeah, see, I'm an expert. I've read one book. Um, but like the, if we're going to define, one area we can affect society, especially not redistrib not redistribution of wealth, but like starting people off in life with a reasonable shot at improving their situation from for the better of having a life better than that of their parents. The place to start is education, and the degree to which we've willfully allowed wealth and circumstance uh, to be to be torn away from poor kids, poor neighborhoods, poor skill, poor schools. Mm. I, I think it's just a, a bad place we've been in for 20 years and a worse place we're going. So what is the solution from an education standpoint? Uh, it's well, yeah. Um, Sorry. I, that's I think a big it's a question. Real, and it's a real cultural shift mm -hmm. because it, it's, it's a, it's a cycle that reinforces itself. You've got increasing, 
increasing isolation in neighborhoods. You know, if you if you deplete the middle class and everybody moves towards the poles, there's less and less middle class. Uh, more people living on the on the high and the low. Sure. You, well, you've also got that in in neighborhoods. Whereas it used to be, and we're really lucky. We live in a town that does have a strong middle class, mm-hmm. and you and I are both in the middle class. Yeah. Um, but you know, throughout our country, you know, neighborhoods that used to be mixed went one direction or the other. No. You know, it's either you know horrible gangs and poverty, or you know hired hired live-in servants. And, you know, neighborhoods that were exactly the same in the 50s, they went one direction or the other and they might have been next to each other. Like, and that reinforces, like, since schools are local and since there's been a lot of pushback on uh, integration and busing and and such issues, these things get, like, studies show that um, what's actually more important than the amount of dollars you spend on a school is the environment kids come in with. Right. So if you come from a low class background and you've got you've got two parents working, you're not getting attention at home. Well, that also means your parents aren't involved in your school culture and improving it. And that generally kids are coming in with emotional problems and their teachers are forced to do more discipline and sort of child management versus teaching. You know, so, yeah, it's it's a complex societal issue that's not just about schools, about neighborhoods. It's not just about funds. It's about attention. It's. Yeah. So yeah, it's a lot of things. So, and that is, I was about to say that is fixable how, but obviously like I was saying with abortion, well, like, like not we everything, not off, everything Mike, is one. It's all the blame on the robots, man. Okay. Well, here we go. Uh, now we're going to talk about robots. No. Um, no, it's, uh, you're talking about automation, automation. and that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. I was just trying to say, a better it, say it in the craziest way I could. Yeah. Um, yeah, that definitely is, uh, something that, well, that like, I, I, as a conservative, it's just like, it's possible to succeed your way out of a job or not you, but like society to succeed its way out of an industry and out of a type of job where you're making technological progress, you're making financial progress, you're making professional progress. And before you know it, like, oh, look, look how streamlined we've made this business. Um, there's a wonderful film called uh, The Man in the White Suit. Have you seen it? I don't even know it. It's with uh, Alec Guinness. It's from the 1950s. And he plays this guy who has created this new type of fabric that doesn't get dirty and doesn't wear out. And he's so excited because now people don't have to spend so much money on clothes. The community that he's a part of is not super thrilled with this because there's like local, you know, uh, manufacturers and stuff like clothing manufacturers. And they're like, well, now we're going to be out of a job. So what do we do? And I remember watching that and being like, that is a conundrum. Yeah. You know, like at what point do you, uh, at what point do you take care of the consumer? What point do you take care of the worker? And the two aren't always, uh, on the same page. Well, I think the sad, I I mean, I think one of the sad economic realities of of automation is there's this promise in like, you know, the seventies. And even I grew up with it as a child of the, you know, like the late eighties, this promise of. Like I remember, I remember like, uh, like them bringing a couple of rudimentary, obviously robots. Oh sure. Into my school and like just being blown away as this kid. But the like the, the one that shows up in one of the Rocky movies. Yes, that one yeah. was there. That yeah. one was totally there. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I just got so excited, guys. Um, that Polly had some kind of uh, love relationship with. That was a great plot line. I mean, one of the greatest plot lines in uh, subplots in all of Rocky Three. Rocky did, Three. I think that was three. Yeah. yeah. Um, clever, clever Lang. Um, you just got it. You got to name the nemesis whenever you name a Rocky movie, guys. 
one of the like the narrative of that here comes automation was we are soon as a society going to be able to generate such wealth that there will be more for everyone. And the narrative turns out to be exactly half right. There's more wealth in the world than ever there has been, but it turns out uh, rich dudes uh, bought the robots, rich dudes employ the robots and all that wealth goes to said rich dudes. Yeah. The the robots do not, they don't prevent money from coming in. Yeah. Like that's great. Uh, And you know, but uh, money going out uh, to employees like, now you don't need to worry about that anymore. And I think that's, I think it's deeply sad and deeply troubling to a Christian worldview. Um, and also I, I think like this presumption that like, uh, well, what's the solution, a welfare state or, you know, guaranteed income or whatever, like, no, not necessarily. Maybe it's just a mindset that I'm a rich dude who lives on top of a hill in my community. Yeah. And maybe I should take part of what I make and not give it employ folk. Um, and you know, I, I don't think that those things need to be, I think like, you know, like a number of debates you and I have already talked about, like it doesn't need to be either black or white. There's something we can do that actually represents compromise. Now, when you say employ folks, do you mean, I think you can create jobs, right? Like, like FDR and, you know, through Lyndon Johnson, I mean, even through, even through Nixon, I think it's an interesting point of view that, uh, Chomsky, uh, Noam Chomsky put forward of like, he, he says that Nixon was the last new deal president. Hmm. Um, given, you know, he had, he had a lot of major social programs, including inventing the EPA. Yeah, that's right. Conservatives, conservatives used to believe in conservationism, uh, which I think makes sense as a matter of fact. TR. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. right invented that. the national parks. Yeah. Um, uh, Chomsky's I, like this, this idea of, of programs that are both social and professional and the new deal of like, I mean, what does every part of our country need that it's not getting like infrastructure infrastructure is crumbling. Infrastructure will never be automated. Like, well, I mean, to some degree, highway building is automated, but you always need boots on the ground for that. Right. Um, I think that's an opportunity that's been so missed for so long because we've got at least one party that, is is dedicated to shaving off every cent and why not have the highways and the airports crumble crumble to achieve that i will say well president trump did just uh propose a multi-billion dollar if not trillion dollar uh infrastructure bill. and yeah if less than 40 percent of that is written off as waste to his own cronies i'll be thrilled yeah <laughs> and see and this brings us back to the idea of politics as opposed to economic theory yeah very much so. Is that like, because if you get to economic theory, I think, yes, you will find, you know, Keynes versus uh, Hayek and stuff like that. But there is going to, but there's theory and then there's practicality. And where practicality comes in, I think you actually find a lot more, you know, I can, I can stick to certain ideals and say like, oh no, these two things should never come together. It's like, yeah, but in real life that's the thing is like people talk about like communism, like, well, if you know, if in a perfect world it would work, it's like, yeah, but it isn't. So it won't, but in the same way, uh, a completely unfettered market, you will find, you will get greed in there. And 
Now, I don't think that that necessarily means that uh, we should be vociferously well done, by the way. I was excited <laughs> when you said that. I was like, oh, comment on it at some point. He needs to know that is a good word for podcasts. Um, uh, <laughs> um, Noted. But I don't necessarily think that uh, a market needs to be vociferously regulated, but I'm not so naive in my ideals to think that it needs no regulation, that it will regulate itself. Like you do need, you know, as, as, as Milton Friedman had to say many times, he's like, he goes, I'm not an anarchist. Like he, he, you, yeah. you actually watch as he gets older and he gets more angry when he said, when he, that he has to say that. But again, it's understandable why he, why people might feel he thinks that, um, because he does speak in terms of ideals. He speaks in terms of theory. Um, but, uh, but that's the thing is, so when you're talking about ideas and you're talking about how best to implement them, well, theoretically, you should be arriving at politics. How best to implement them? Well, obviously, politics is how you implement them. Well, kind of, maybe. That's not usually how it works out. Because then you get the idea of, you know, as you say, crony capitalism, which is something that exists all over the place and Republicans don't call it out as much as they should. They do it in like a cursory tokenism type of way, but they don't really do anything to fight it, you know? And it just like, and so that's when, that's when I start to get, so I mentioned Dennis Miller earlier at some point today. Um, let's, let's talk about his Monday night football career. That's what I really want to get into. I kind of love that he had one. Me too. Me but too. Um, me too. But he had a, uh, and now he's he's very conservative, and to a degree that I don't even agree with. But um, but in the mid '90s, he was kind of outside of politics, and he just mm -hmm. commented on everything. And there came this moment when I think by that point he was in his 40s, and he said, "You know, he's like, I'm looks." And this was in his stand-up special. He said this. He said. I'm looking, he goes, so how do we, you know, how do we, how do we fix all this? How do we, how do we make the, the world better? And he goes, I don't know. I think it might be unfixable. <laughs> and he's like, I never thought that before, but, uh, I have a family now and I just figure like, maybe I, uh, maybe the best thing I can do personally is just try to be a good person, make some money for me and my family, try to raise them right. And, uh, and just keep to myself. And there are days when I feel like that hmm. from a political standpoint. And certainly in the last couple months, I have felt like that where it's like, if, if we get, if we have gotten to this point, it's indicative of a system, not merely a political system, but a larger cultural system that is maybe unfixable. Like the, it's that idea of like, you know, trying on a leather glove and you put it on like a bigger hand and it stretches it out and then it can never go back quite to how it was. Hmm. And I just wonder, you know, I like the idea of, of like Barack Obama being an inspiring figure, the idea of, of Ronald Reagan, you know, it's morning in America being an inspiring figure that people, you know, Reagan won with 49. He, he, he was reelected with 49 States. Like that is the country coming together behind somebody. Same with, uh, Obama when he was elected. I just don't, I, I, I'm sure somewhere there's somebody like that, that, uh, that people can get behind. But at the same time, like, I just don't know. I feel like even whatever party that, that inspirational figure might belong to the other party will try to destroy that person. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Sorry. I, I'm being really cynical. No, no. I, I think your I think your analysis of where we're at is apt. 
I just, I just don't think, uh, I just don't think it's where we're going to be. I think the level of civic engagement we've got right now is unprecedented in my lifetime. And I've got hope that it's not a flash in the pan based on the upheaval of the last few months. I've, I've got hope that there, there is a, I mean, especially, I think, I think what I'm seeing is the least engaged demographic, the millennials mm-hmm. have had a shift toward being some of the most yeah. engaged. And I think that, that, that might actually change the game. And then the degree to which both parties have been co-opted by, by money and politics. Mm-hmm. I think the level of disgust with that, um, which I feel very strongly, uh, oh yeah, I'm going to name check, uh, represent dot us, uh, an amazing group that, that does for one hilarious videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also just has a really deft analysis of here's what's wrong with money and politics. Here's how on the big level we get rid of it. And here's how on the local level we're actually having success. I have hope that that's going to yield really good results. And another thing that you were saying is this, you know, kind of disengagement from politics. I think it's an illusion. Mm -hmm. Um, Capital P politics, you're talking about government. Sure. The personal is political and every relationship by definition is political. You know, in our church, there's politics. In our friendships, there's politics. In our family, there's politics. And so I think when we, when we disengage from capital P politics, the only thing we do is ensure that it goes into a downward spiral. Yeah. And I, I do think I, I've got hope that our realization of that reality is, is, is going to change things. Because we've been here before. I mean, we've had horrible government. We've had horrible cronyism that got better. I mean, the post-Watergate changes to our government were stupendous. I mean, they, they reshaped the federal government and, you know, led to, led to a lot of good stuff that, you know, business really doubled down, (laughs) down on to, to try to, uh, tear down. But I I think, I think there's hope in an upswing in a cycle that hasn't been good for a while. Well, and I'm not going to say I disagree, but here's all the stuff that my, where my mind goes. (laughs) Civic engagement is not the same as civilized engagement. <laughs> and I am seeing a lot of people. So I'm, I'm in the midst of, of, of uh, getting my master's. So I'm, I'm very interested in what happens on college campuses. And you have, you know, uh, you have a, a large amount of the electorate um, not allowing speakers to speak uh, on a public campus you have people actually hurting each other you have students saying that freedom that the concept of free speech is something that simply favors the rich and that we ultimately need to uh abolish it i don't know certainly Mm -hmm. on campuses and (laughs) stuff like that is uh off-putting and i feel like that could that's the kind of thing where it's not tied to any particular party. That's just the general tone. And my hope is that as a lot of these, I'm going to sound old again, as a lot of these kids get older, they realize, oh, wait, never mind. Not that they lose their idealism, but they realize like, no, 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 it's good to have people say things. Um, that's my hope, but I also worry. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's natural to worry, <laughs> right? I'm a worrisome di- kind of guy. Uh, but not your heart be troubled. 
Um, now, who said that? Was that uh, that sounds like a Mitch McConnell? You remember some guy? He had long hair. He, you know, uh, he drove he a has, blue car. You remember? That, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, was, that was a really that was an old old Simpsons. Uh, Here's one of my other favorite Simpsons references. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, where Homer is talking, uh, Bart is saying something about like something being expensive. He goes. And Homer goes, oh my gosh, don't tell me about expensive. Everything's expensive. Look at this Bible. I paid $25 for it. And he goes, and talk about a preachy book. And he opens it up and goes, everyone's a sinner except for this guy. <laughs> and just So he read the whole thing, yeah. found it preachy, picked up enough to know that this guy's not a sinner, but won't remember his name. Oh my gosh, Simpsons yeah, used so to be so there. good. Oh, it was the best. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Go on. Uh, I don't even know where it's going. Um, uh, well, yeah, the, again, like the, the Christian perspective of like, I, I think, you know, in politics, the Christian right is so easily, so easily abusable by exploiting its fear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the deep and bitter irony of that, that that is, you know, we're the last people who should be operating from there. You know, we should be operating from hope and letting not our hearts be troubled. Um but instead, we are we are you know turning our turning our hair gray by by worry, which is I'm, I you know I have no moral authority on this issue. I <laughs> I myself worry far too much. Mm. Um, I I think we got to hold on to hope, like and I I I think the secular mind can embrace that you know <laughs> through just psychological health, and I think the the Christian mind is quite called to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we've got to believe that, you know, I, we we can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, right? Right. I don't mean hope just in the ultimate sense, because uh, that's got to be the big one. No. But, you know, we're obviously, you know, if we're going to follow our, our Savior, we're, we're obviously called to care for the people in front of us and the world in front of us and the relationships outside of our home and our political party and church. And it does speak to this idea that I know a lot of people, a lot of Christians I know on social media after the election, uh, kind of were rather bitter about this idea that God does put people in power, that God is sovereign and he puts people in power. We don't know why it might be to, uh, galvanize, yeah. uh, uh, uh People that are, that are previously unengaged. It could be that who's to say, but either way, like if we are, if we believe in the idea of sovereignty and that God is ultimately in control, uh, in some capacity, then we have to believe that's that our current circumstances are the way they are for a reason. Mm. Now, the reason might not be that, well, clearly the best man for the job is the, in the presidency right now. Yeah. It might not be that. Uh, in fact, I so vent, so I'd venture to say it is not. leaders throughout time. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but that's the thing, the idea of God being in control, even this is something I've had to tell myself personally. And I, and it, it can apply to larger things that like, if God is in control and he's brought me into a, a rough place, then I can at least take comfort in the fact that someone smarter than me is running things. Yeah. Even if I cannot see any light at the end of the tunnel, uh, I, I at least know that, well, I don't know everything and I don't run everything. And that's ultimately a good thing. Mm. Um, because I'm a deeply flawed person and God is not. And so 
that sometimes that's what I have to tell myself to keep myself from worrying. It doesn't mean, as you said, it doesn't mean being like, well, God's in control. So I'm just going to do my own thing. You still have a whatever responsibility you have, whether it be to your family, to your church, to politics. Uh, you know, if you want to, maybe you want to be politically engaged, who's to say, but what, wherever it is you're called, you're just because things are bad. That doesn't mean you are allowed to disengage. Hmm. Um, you know, and at times like this, like it is very easy to be hopeless, but it's also easy to not easy. It's also imperative to start connecting with people that you do agree with and the people you don't agree with and, and engage with them. I haven't said it on the show in a while, but seeing people as people, as opposed to simply what they represent. Yeah. Um, sorry, I've been talking for a while. Uh, no, I, well, I mean, I, I don't have much to say about any of that except not my head in agreement, which I've been doing. You all might not, y'all might not have been able to hear that aside from my old man grunting. Look, I know you, uh, I know you actors used to having cameras on you at all time, but this is an audio show. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's, that's my existence. Just cameras, cameras, cameras. Oh my cameras. gosh, just oh, can't get enough. Oh, that the, the, that darn paparazzi. So, I do. We do need to to bring this to a close, and I have a yeah. number of things that I wanna that I wanna talk about. Um, to bring it back to the movie that we stopped talking about oh, easily yeah. what, an hour what ago. Movie. Um, so the nature of a face in the crowd, and the nature and where it intersects with politics, where Artful it intersects segue. with where we are. Did I? Did was it? Hey, hey, you know, sometimes you just got to have, yeah, you have somewhere I to agree. be. I'm with you. Um, is that you know we are talking about this idea of populism. And we're talking about this idea that you know people. It's very easy to uh, a moment ago. I even talked about you know this phantom politician, Democrat or Republican mm-hmm. in the future that we can all get behind. Well, that man's not going to save us in a mm-hmm. larger sense. He is still deeply flawed. If if I've said it before, if David can be called a, a man after God's own heart and then go and do some terrible things, like yeah, we can't be putting our faith in people. Uh, in or in leaders, like obviously we can love people, we can want the best for them, but that's that can't be where we find our hope. Our hope has to be larger than that. Yeah. Um, and so I have uh, a couple of uh, of of uh, Bible verses here. One is Psalm one eighteen verses eight and nine. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes or uh, self-described Kings. Um, he never actually called himself a King, but come on. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and then second Timothy three verses 12 through 17. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and, and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I love that part. Yeah. Deceiving. Yes. But also being deceived undoubtedly on a sin level, but also on a level of probably self-importance. Man, it's been too long since I read second Timothy. Yeah. I was looking at this and I thought like, it's been years. Like I read it in a small group I was part of years ago, but Mm -hmm. I think that was the last time. Uh, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know that those, because you know those from from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's a lot there, obviously, but in the end, like the it it points back to scripture, it points back to to God, it points back to Jesus, as that is what 
that is all we need. Now, obviously, it's good to read these other books. Uh, it's good to to listen to politicians. It's good to even have hope in politicians from time to time. But in the end, like this is what you need. Well, what I see, what I see in that passage, like the, our our, I think there's such a strong strain um, in our Christian culture of like hell in a handbasket ism. Sure. Of like, yeah, this is it. This, yeah. this is literally the end times. Yeah, and the um, the, the slippery slope element yeah. as well. And then the the Bible's ability to uh, <laughs> that's a weird phrase. The Bible's ability, but what you find in the Bible of this this two handedness, an acknowledgement, you know, to quote the passage, uh, the imposters will go from bad to worse. Yeah. So sort of that hell in a handbasketism. Yeah. But then the hope of, but as for you. Yeah. continue what you have learned and have become convinced of that, that like, you don't, you don't need to shy away from the darkness that's in the world yeah. and you, you must acknowledge it, but you know, <laughs> there's also what you can do. Yeah. It's, it's also that idea. I don't remember where the passage is, but that idea of like the poor will always be with you. That's not letting, that's not yeah. said to let you off the hook, my word, you know? And I don't think anybody actually sees it that way. It's like, well, I, I'm sure someone somewhere has, has read it that way. But, uh, but it does mean that like, it's so strange. And this, this speaks to stuff we've talked about before, which is like, you know, living in this tension that like, it's important to see the world as it is and to recognize who you are and your own limitations. The poor will always be with you. You know, imposters, uh, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse. That's just a fact of life. But as for you, hmm. you know, the truth, you know, how you should act, you know, you have somebody to emulate and that is the, and in him, you have your own salvation for those days when you don't do things correctly. Um, you know, in the end, that's the most we can do is be true to our own beliefs and be true to Christ. Uh, whether you are Republican, Democrat, Green Party, uh, whether you're a Trump supporter or a, or a Hillary supporter, whatever it is, like in the end, Trump is not going to save you. <laughs> Hillary is not going to save you. This phantom inspirational politician that I've invented is not going to save us. Like we need to we need to ultimately look at Christ and then it sounds simplistic, but like look to Christ and then go on about our lives, not disengaged, but engaged in a, I think, realistic way. Well, yeah. And the, I mean, the, the thing you mentioned about like that, that jump from God's sovereignty, which is a, a scriptural and theological fact to the grayer area of God's in control and the, the, the implications rather of the word control. Sure. Sure. Um, that, you know, I think for a lot of people it implies micromanagement and is dangerous. And then the jump from that to, and therefore Trump is quote God's man, right. Uh, which is, you know, a quantum leap, not a jump. Uh, I, I think the hope, the hope of a leader like Trump for, for we Christians is, is the, the, the realization that, like I, for me, the few days after the election, I mean, I've been in a lot of mourning this past year. We had a lot of death mm. and there was no mistaking it. I was in mourning mm -hmm. and a huge part of that realization was like, oh my word, I have too much invested in this. If it feels this yeah. bad, like this is not my primary citizenship. Like I obviously, obviously there's some stuff to be upset about. Sure. But if I'm literally mourning, I've got too much invested in this. 
Oh, and then I'll name check a book that has meant a lot to me, a, a, a new book by Michael Ware called uh, Reclaiming Hope about Christians and politics. He was the, uh, in the Obama administration, he was the evangelical outreach guy within the um, office of faith in the White House that W invented mm -hmm. and everybody was convinced Obama was going to get rid of, but Obama expanded. No. He was the evangelical voice and evangelical outreach guy. Is and this any, book he wrote is awesome. Is there anybody in that office right now? What are they doing with it? No, it still exists, but I do, you know, like, uh, I do think it's mostly unfilled, but so are, you know, truly critical, uh, positions in, you know, like secretary of the Navy, uh, I think remains unfilled. So I think oh, the Navy, it's just a bunch yeah, of you know, who needs it. Whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, that book, I love that book. Reclaiming hope you said. Yeah. I don't know why I'm convinced I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. Okay. Michael Ware. He's, I, I think it's his first book, so you're going to find it. Um, yeah, it's. You know, we if, if you made it this far, if you made it through the full-on political talk uh, and economics talk, then uh, I commend God you. God bless you. Uh, you got a long commute like me. Yeah, if boy, you oh boy. through an episode this long. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing that I want to say, and I said it at the end of the uh, the episode with David, uh, except I can, I can uh, double down on it now, uh, is that, you know, there are things that uh, Jeff and I do not agree on. But what we're talking about is ultimately uh, implementation. But when it comes right down to it, like we both believe not merely in a God, but in the God, and we believe in Christ, and that is where we find our hope. And in the end, like, that is what, as, as you say, like that idea, it's so interesting when, when, when you're part of a church or you're part of the, the, the Christian community for so long, like there are certain terms, certain phrases that you just get used to. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me like, m not everyone might recognize that. So the idea of primary citizenship, mm -hmm. somebody might think like, wait, is Jeff Canadian? <laughs> Explain what you mean when you say that. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Christ in the Gospels, uh, the the phrase "kingdom of God" is usually how it's translated. But mm -hmm. that that phrase, it he he's talking about something that is to be, and that's you know usually our idea of heaven. Uh, but he's also talking, you know, in Matthew and Mark especially, you see it as something that that is, and so it's a reality that uh, you know that I think the traditional theological formulation of it is the kingdom of God is and is coming to be, mm -hmm. and you know we're we're children of the King. And that, that is, we, we are to keep our eyes on that. That's our, our identity. And, you know, all of humanity is, uh, image bearers of God. And that's the most important thing to, to believe about a person, whether they commit evil acts or not. No. Uh, that person is deserving of respect because they're an image bearer of God. And, lest anybody think that the idea of, of primary citizenship means that we should be disengaged. We have also very specifically mm. been called ambassadors mm. and an ambassador's job is not to come into a country and a say, all right, here's everything you're doing wrong, nor is it to stay in the embassy and just hang out for a while. It is all about engagement. It is all about, you've got the, you like, that's the, that's the governmental metaphor. You've got sure. the courtroom metaphor. Yeah, that's true. We're witnesses. We're not yeah. the judge. We ain't the prosecutor or the defense. Yeah. We're the witness. And yeah. I, I mean, I think so much of our problem is we get confused. That's that we're true. the king or the judge. Yeah. No, those aren't the metaphors. Yeah. Not even necessarily the defense attorney. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, we're, we're talking about some pretty big stuff here. Um, I've got a couple, I've got one more quote here. Um, 
Well, a couple. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think I've said this before. Uh, Democracy demands that little men should not take big ones too seriously. It dies when it is full of little men who think they are big themselves. I'd say that's... I'm not sure if I'd say democracy dies at that point, but uh, it certainly gets uh, warped a little bit. The death rattle begins. Um, (laughs) Exactly. You you start to hear some wheezing. (laughs) Um, But uh, And then there's a wonderful line. uh, It is the last line, in fact, of A Face in the Crowd. Walter Matthau says it. He says, you were taken in. He's talking about uh, Lonesome Roads, saying you were taken in just like we were all taken in, but we get wise to him. That's our strength. We get wise to him. And while there's an element to that line that I don't like, because I feel like it lets them off the hook a little bit too much. Like, oh, look at us. We got wise to him. It's like, yeah, not fast enough. (laughs) But at the same time, it's this idea of, you know, there have been, uh, we've had more than our fair share of political charlatans Mm -hmm. and they take us in for a while, but hopefully we get wise to them. But then in order to do so, I would say, I like the, I like the phrase wise. I think it's important that we understand what wisdom is. Mm. Um, and so what is it? The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Is that, is that the phrase? That's how it goes. And so, um, and of course, please understand what we say when we, what we mean when we say fear, we don't mean full on, right. You know, trembling, that's part of it, but it's also uh, a respect and an, and an understanding oh. of the enormity of God. And so once you understand that, then you will understand what wisdom is. And then you can start to get wise uh, to, uh, to politicians. See how I bring that all around. I've been podcasting oh. for a while. <laughs> Look, you don't get, you don't get multiple podcast you award you nominations. See when he said that he kicked back in his chair and he put his feet on the desk. Uh, and then I remembered, Oh shoot, the mic is on the, on the <laughs> table. Um, so yeah, uh, something to keep in mind. I hope this is this has been uh, encouraging to you guys, I, and possibly infuriating as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's perfectly you know this is not going to our disagreement is not going to ruin our friendship on this episode. Yeah, uh, we'll save that absolutely. We'll that's save for, that. That's for off mic. We'll save that for how you feel about Titanic. Ex- oh boy, well, how do you feel about? No, Titanic? I'm sure I'm sure we're in agreement. Oh my word! <coughs> like many many huge cultural moments in my in in my culture, just looking at the screen, being like, I do not get my world why is this a thing you know what as tends to happen there are movies that people really like and then i don't care for and then i see another ver i see one of the movies that it spawned that is much worse and suddenly i like it a lot more i didn't like titanic until i saw pearl harbor i didn't i didn't (laughs) why would would i see that (laughs) that's a good question uh and then I didn't really like Gladiator until I saw Kingdom of God, though I've heard that the director's cut is amazing. Um, and in the same way, I didn't really care for Titanic until I saw Avatar, which I... And then, you know what? I'm sure something's going to come along that's going to make me appreciate Avatar, like Avatar 2. Man, what what weird movies just got rattled off. Yeah. Whew. So, yeah, I, I like to, I like to, in a face, look, in a discussion of a face in the crowd, it's only a matter of time before you arrive at Titanic and Avatar. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. Uh, well, we'll go ahead and leave it there. You're welcome to leave a comment, uh, encouraged, uh, certainly with a, an episode like this, encouraged to leave a comment. Um, check out a face in the crowd. If you haven't seen it, it's marvelous. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on YouTube, uh, for rental. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at More Lessons. Are you on? You are on Twitter, correct? I'm on. Yeah, I do the tweets. Where can you? Where can you be found on Twitter? 
At Jeff Newberg. At Jeff Newberg. Yeah. Berg with a U. That's right. All right. Uh, and then you can always email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. And then uh, it's looking like, you know, we haven't done a full on a regular format episode in a while, but uh, it's looking like we're going to get back into that in the next few weeks as my uh, quarter starts to wind down and I have a bit more time. So, uh, so in the meantime, thank you all for listening. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, man. And just, just so y'all know, this is the kind of discussion that can improve a friendship. Just because just folks disagree. Yeah, not this one. No, no, not this one theoretically. No, 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 no. <laughs> theoretically, it can happen. <laughs> I've heard it happen. Uh, anyway, yeah, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.